Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the astrological forecast for December of 2021. Joining me today are astrologers Austin Kopic and special guest co-host Becca Tarnas. Welcome, both of you. Hey, hey. Hi, thank you. And so I'm going to give a brief overview of the month ahead and the astrology of December. Then we're going to talk and do a little bit of a review of some of the astrological things that happened in November, and then we'll jump headlong into the astrology of December. How does that sound to both of you? Sounds fantastic. Superb. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's go for it. So first I'll show the December astrological calendar, where we start off at the very first of the month with Neptune stationing direct in Pisces on December 1st followed a few days later by a solar eclipse in the sign of Sagittarius on December 4th. Then about a week later, Mars moves into Sagittarius and out of Scorpio on the 13th of December, and the same day Mercury moves into Capricorn. Then we get our second lunation of the month on the 18th, which is a full moon in Gemini, followed by Venus stationing retrograde uh, in the sign of Capricorn conjunct Pluto, then the sun goes into Capricorn on the 21st. We have the third and final exact Saturn-Uranus square on the 24th of December. And finally, at the end of the month, Jupiter moves into Pisces on the 27th. So that's the broad strokes of the month. Here's another image of where the planets will start at the beginning of the month and where they will end up by the end of December as we wrap up the astrology of 2021. So that's kind of the broad, broad brush strokes. Uh, welcome, both of you. Welcome back, Austin, and welcome, Becca, for your first forecast episode. You've been on a couple of other podcast episodes here before. But this is your first time joining us as a guest co-host for the forecast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so excited to participate in this. As I was saying to both of you before, this really does feel like a dream come true. So I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. Well, yeah, this is a great episode to have you on because we're going to be talking a lot about both Venus retrograde, and you and I did the Venus episode a few months ago for the Planets series, and then also the third Saturn-Uranus square, which I know you have a lot to say about as well, right? I do have a lot to say about it. Yeah, I've been researching Saturn-Uranus alignments through history and finding some really interesting patterns. So uh, the fact that we're really in the thick of that right now, I think we can all feel it in different ways. Definitely. Uh, Austin, how are you How are you feeling uh, with the astrology coming out of November and, and getting out of that difficult T-square that we talked so much about last month? Um, I've had a lot of astrologer good feelings over the last month. Um, there are a lot of the, the bad things happened uh, at the time that I feared they would and were of the nature, sometimes hilariously matching the nature of what we talked about. So I'm, you know, I'm, I don't find, uh, I don't generally find joy in human suffering, but there's at least that, uh, that, that astrologer good where it's like, well, at least it came as scheduled. Yeah. And sometimes in some instances, much more literally than we even expected. So. Let's do a little bit of a review of some of like the news stories that have happened in the past few weeks that have really gone together with and matched the astrology perfectly, because I think that'll help set us up before we really get into December. So one of the main things that we were very much focused on in the last forecast was the Mars-Saturn square, which went exact around the middle of November, followed by the Mars-Uranus opposition, which went exact about a week later, also around mid-November. And one of the 
you know, I want to say funny, but one of the just bizarre stories that came out in the news was that there were these terrible storms in Egypt, which apparently drove hundreds of like scorpions out of their nests and into people's homes in Egypt. And it led to, I think, over at least 500 people being stung by scorpions right around the middle of November. We started seeing all of these stories come through from different spots around the world. So it was pretty wild, very literal and very like apparently non uh, figurative scorpi- scorpions, but literally scorpions came out and started stinging people. Yeah. Non metaphorical scorpions with non metaphorical venom. Yeah. Sometimes the astrology is very literal, and it sounds like one of those well, old in this case, very biblical, a plague of scorpions in Egypt. <laughs> right. It definitely sounds like we've stepped into the realm of mythology or just you you can feel the external world kind of vibrating with these archetypal principles. It is. Yeah. The, uh, it, it, uh, unfortunately, it's an Old Testament uh, biblical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, and you read sometimes those old delineations in like ancient texts of like, you know, that such and such eclipse will happen and there will be like locusts in the land or something like that. But we've had a little bit of all of that at different points in this year, which is a little bit weird in terms of just like bizarre, sometimes elemental or um, sometimes insects or other things sort of like coming out of nowhere at different points um, in really strange ways. Yeah, the literalness of the scorpion and how um, it, it just really kind of makes you marvel <laughs> at the uh, the expressiveness of the cosmos. You could say, like being able to come forward in such a uh, recognizable form. It, Austin, as you were saying, there is that astrologer's delight in it. Yeah, if it's going to happen, like it can at least be mm, fantastic and entertaining. You know, there's a lot of suffering that's very boring, um, which is, a, you know, heaping additional suffering onto the pain. But I don't know. Yeah, the uh, uh, was a student of mine was telling me that in terms of animal anomalies, that up where she is in on the I believe the western coast of Canada, in the area she has the um, the number of coyote attacks is something like a hundred times what the normal is um, over the last. Uh, century, like the last year or two, the coyotes have been going crazy and attacking people. And it reminds me of uh, there. Uh, it reminds me of a, a custom, at least during the like, um, like uh, should we say Han Dynasty and the period following, like two thousand years ago ish China, where in order to uh, to criticize the way that land was being ruled because uh, in order to get around the problems with direct criticizing governance, you would point out um, sicknesses in the land. And so it would be like, ah, I heard that there was a, there was a rumor that, um, you know, a calf was born, was stillborn with two heads in this province. And that was a way of saying that the governor's fucking up. But there was the, it not only you know did it have a sort of a pol- a political workaround element, but it was also a way of uh, assuming that the deviations in the natural world were a commentary on the human world as well. Yeah, it's that uh, fully kind of integrated system or worldview where if the king is aligned or the ruler is aligned, then the rest of nature should fall into accordance. And if not, then all kinds of strange things are happening. 
Right. That there's a general disharmony, which is almost um, sort of viral in its nature and appears at different levels. Yeah. And also with the scorpion thing, just it's a good reminder that sometimes the archetypes, while they can have psychological manifestations or other things, like usually what you'll see is just echoes of, of that archetype during certain alignments coming up in different ways. And sometimes those ways can be very literal. It can just be like, you know, what is the most literal manifestation you could possibly come up with for Mars going through Scorpio and opposing Uranus and squaring Saturn? And that's what will happen at that time. It's one of the weird things I've learned doing these mundane forecasts over the past, what, six years now with you, Austin, is just sometimes it can be very literal. And that's sometimes the hardest thing is, is to not give it some sort of too overly broad archetypal or poetic spin, but instead sometimes to think about like what is the most literal thing that could happen. And there will be some variation of that in all likelihood. Yeah. Well, and it, it almost, it always, it, I would say it almost always manifests literally and metaphorically. Like you have lots of things that were um, poetic scorpions over the last month, but then you also get thousands of real scorpions. <laughs> it's funny because in the last couple of weeks, I've had two somewhat dramatic encounters with wolf spiders. They're they're huge. And uh, it's the only time I've seen them where I live. And I saw two of them this time. And it's that same kind of like visceral response of why is the natural world coming forward right now with these uh, kind of predatory insects? It's I'm not big on spiders. <laughs> so um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in other news about things that have been ha that happened in concert around the same time as the Mars Saturn square went exact, one of the things that we were nervous about was some new developments related to COVID, which we said in the last forecast. And now, a few weeks later, it's coming out that there was some new COVID variant um, that first was spotted in Botswana, but then the testing confirmed it in South Africa. And um, this is now becoming like a major news story, I guess. But what was interesting about it is they said the first cases were collected in Botswana on November 11th, and then the earliest in South Africa were recorded three days later on the 14th. So that just perfectly lines up with the Mars-Saturn square and the Mars-Uranus opposition that we were so concerned about. But it's interesting, again, reminding us that sometimes things happen, but you don't really know about it fully or you can't fully understand the significance of a certain time period until a little bit later when things become clear. It's like with the first COVID death when it was announced that it was the day before the exact Saturn-Pluto conjunction and right, no one in that moment could have said that it was going to blow up to the scale that it did. Um, the fact too that this mutation, I think there's 30 mutations it's just this kind of uh, shocking change and thinking of the Mars-Uranus opposition and that kind of Uranian impulse for change and that there's um, this kind of unexpected number of them too. 30 changes is really kind of unprecedented, which I guess is part of why it's making headlines. Yeah. Well, and it ties back into earlier in the year where one of our other aspects this year was when Mars was going through Leo squared Uranus and opposed Saturn. That was um, partially when a lot of the news surrounding the Delta variant uh, last summer in the Northern Hemisphere became very prominent as well. So it's an interesting seeing continuations of that at the hard aspects of Mars and Saturn. Yeah. And so uh, on the topic of 
things that are easier to see in retrospect. One of the things that we don't have statistics on and, and probably can't for, I don't know, at least another several weeks is uh, in the US, the eviction moratorium um, was gone by the end of last month. And so a lot of evictions that were um, sort of stacked up are have been starting to occur this month. And what that looks like, um, you know, we don't really know yet, but like that is, you know, there, there's, there were a number in line. So we'll see what that looks like. But that's another thing that will be much easier to see in retrospect. It's hard to see right now. I think that kind of speaks to the the larger Saturn Uranus dynamic too, where, you know, it can be the sudden collapse of uh, seemingly solid structures and the experience of losing your home and then seeing that on a large scale that there really is going to be seemingly this feeling of uh, those structures around, literally the walls around one kind of coming down with um, with those evictions. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially if we're talking about Saturn, like it, what can Saturn provide that's positive? Um, you know, we often talk about Saturn walls, right? Walls can be positive, walls can be negative, but um, you know, what is it? The, at the very base of the Maslow pyramid is shelter. Mm-hmm. It's a roof over your head. Right. And so disrupting a Uranus challenging Saturn can be, uh, how should we say, a freedom, a freedom loving person challenging an authoritarian structure. But it can also be Uranus um, <laughs> making havoc with basic, you're playing havoc with basic things like that, you know, like four walls and a roof. In uh, with the first alignment of Saturn Uranus in February, that was when the, the, uh, the temperatures dropped so suddenly in Texas, and you had all of those pipes bursting. And again, like the home, uh, the structure of the home suddenly collapsing as you know, pipes, pipes are bursting everywhere. People's homes are being flooded with freezing water. Yeah, and that's um, I don't know if I don't know if you followed it, but part of the way we've been talking about the ongoing Saturn Uranus on the podcast here um, has been in terms of stress tests. Right. And especially stress testing systems and institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, in that case, the power grid, the water grid, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, like that. And so we haven't talked to you haven't been on here before, Becca. Um, so let's, I, I want to get your opinion on some of the things that we've just been the way we've been talking about these things for, I don't know, a year now. Like, um, so we yeah, are going to get into the Saturn Uranus talk later. Like, let's not okay. jump into I mean, that But it was much. all, it all happened last month too. Like it was yeah. Mars hitting Saturn Uranus. It's right. just sort of both months. I just want to make sure we go through the news stories to do the review section first. And then, cause I want to make sure we spend a good chunk of time okay. talking about the Saturn Uranus still well, for next month. Let's bookmark that and come back then. I'll stew okay. on your question in the meantime, Austin. <laughs> Just to wrap up the last little thing about the variants, um, the main reason they're saying that this variant could be important is because they're saying that while not as transmissible as Delta, that it um, may be able to sidestep um, some of the vaccination stuff. So it's going to potentially confound some of the attempts to get the numbers of COVID down because it could complicate vaccination efforts and the efficacy of some of the vaccines so far. So that's not great. Um, in other Mars-Saturn square news, though, I noticed there were some people that were able to use 
that square somewhat productively to do things that they didn't want to do but had to do and to sort of like buckle down and have an extended period of just like working on something that required a lot of plotting, long, consistent effort. Um, Austin, I know you did a lot of work on your book, right? Yeah, no, I, I've been killing the game this November, Chris. Um, <laughs> no, I've um, like long, brutal stretches of editing. Uh, I've also, I'm, I've, I've, um, how should we say, done an excellent job of keeping up with a really intense physical regimen that I set myself. Um, it's, I don't know if it's been great. Like it hasn't been a joyful time, um, but there's been a lot of like productive grind. Which is what I hoped and thought I'd be able to get out of it based on a couple things. And so I'm glad I uh <laughs> glad I didn't miss anything. You know, because sometimes you're like, ah, this will be fine for me, and it's not. Um, but this was this was pretty good. Yeah, it reminded me of the more productive side of some of those hard aspects between Mars and Saturn and, and when you can put them to good use by doing things that are are necessary. Did you have any experience like that, Becca? It's definitely been a month of a lot of hard work. It's felt like uh, the different tasks that I'm uh, assigned to do, it almost feels like I'm bench pressing them or something, where it's just like, okay, do the next one. Okay, do the next one. Um, you know, whatever arena it's in. So I definitely felt that work area. And uh, like Austin said, also uh, very intentionally going into the month with. Uh, bringing in the physical exercise. I just thought it's a good opportunity to do that. And also, hopefully, it helps siphon some of that energy. And I was grateful to, I was working with a trainer through the month, and uh, that that felt like a good kind of release for particularly the Mars-Saturn. Um, and something that just occurred to me was with the Uranian element, I did have a, a sudden injury pop up in the middle of that as well, which has been a chronic issue, but it hadn't activated for a while. And there it was suddenly one morning. So I guess I saw that negative side of it as well. It's funny. I did have, it wasn't serious, but I had, I had a pain that I've not had before. Uh, with some of the, the exercises I was doing, I was putting a lot more strain on my wrists than usual. And so my wrists hurt for like two weeks straight. Mm. And I was like, I've never had my wrists hurt for two, <laughs> you know, like I've, um, I don't know, maybe I stayed up playing video games too late one time and my, you know, my right wrist hurt a little bit the next day. Um, but yeah, it was a, a couple different things compounded together. I was like, oh, okay, wrist, wrist pain. No, it wasn't, it wasn't carpal tunnel. Um, it was the, it was from literally doing things where my hands supported my weight. Um, and I was upside down or suspended in some way. That sounds kind of fun. <laughs> it was, it was fun. And then I'd get adrenalized and my wrist would feel fine. And then, uh, then it would hurt again. And so I just, uh, I, I took those portions out of, out of the workout for a while. And now they're, um, now I'm wrist strong again. <laughs> wrist happy i don't know it reminded me of the difference between you know how we all sort of feel to some extent or take part in to some extent the collective you know astrological alignments that are going on at any one time such as for example we're all going to have the classic example from now on of the covid pandemic and and lots of people like sharing in that as a somewhat shared experience for large parts of the world during large parts of 2020 or at least having some similar experience, but then also the difference between still, 
you know, if an alignment like that is closely tied into your chart, how much of a difference, what a huge difference that makes, and how much more personal and sometimes difficult it can be for you if it's a difficult alignment um, versus just the sort of general sense that people might be feeling under a Mars Saturn square if it's not hitting their chart in a particular way, and just that that's much more of a non-specific and not sort of um, acute experience of a certain transit. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like that difference of where it just really feels like it's hitting you and versus like, oh, I'm witnessing that happening outside of me in some way. Um, and I was just noticing that in the chat, people were bringing up uh, accidents, car accidents. And with Mars, Saturn, Uranus, I have noticed um, both at a collective level and at a personal transit level, it can be very accident prone in so many ways. And um, the num just within my personal sphere, and then looking further out, the number of car accidents I uh, either witnessed the aftermath of, heard about, you know, close friend, uh, everyone was okay, fortunately, in that one. Or um, the other day, driving down the highway, seeing here's a kind of Martian piece, um, the completely burned out shell of a semi truck that had just been left by the side of the road, where everything inside of it was was destroyed by fire and just um the again kind of the literalness there of the martian fire just burning after this sudden accident that had taken place yeah um so in terms of same configurations very different results but both related um chris this is something i talked to you about early in the month so much so that it feels like <laughs> like it was last month but it wasn't um, so there was, of course, the Astro World tragedy um, that happened early this month. Uh, the Travis Scott concert where all those people were crushed. Yeah. Um, and so I wasn't paying attention to Astro World at the time. I was paying attention to a UFC event that happened basically the same weekend. And it was widely hailed as perhaps the best card ever. And I was just thinking from an electional astrology point of view, it's like, oh, what is what is this Mars Saturn Uranus thing good for? What what kind of thing should I schedule for this? Maybe fist fights in a cage, right? Versus what is it bad for? Let's all come together and listen to music and have a great time, right? And you know, it's it's the same configuration, so good for one thing and just, you know, literally horrific for another thing. Yeah. Um, one of the things, so just sort of moving on, uh, one of the things I noticed this month, the other major astrology thing that happened, of course, was the first um, eclipse in Taurus, that, that lunar eclipse that occurred at 27 Taurus on November 19th. And one of the things that was fascinating to me um, was that many of the news stories, it wasn't like a super busy news month around mid-month, and then all of a sudden that eclipse hit, and the very next day was just a huge news day where there was just like a ton of big stories coming out all of a sudden. Um, did you guys see the eclipse? It was pretty striking. I actually went out and watched it on my roof. Um, I got some pictures that the astrologer Maurice Fernandez uh, posted on Facebook, and he said I could share those here. Um, but you literally just saw the moon. It was bright. It was like a full moon. It was super bright in the middle of the sky overhead. And then all of a sudden, it just starts getting this shadow over it, which gets progressively bigger and bigger until eventually it's covered and then the moon turns red. And if nobody's like seen a lunar eclipse before, it's quite a striking phenomenon. So I hope some people check it out. Um, did, you, did you see it, Becca? 
I didn't see it. I thought if I wake up while it's happening, then I'm going to go see it. Um, and I ended up waking up around four in the morning. <laughs> and okay. so I missed it. I thought, you know what? It's probably a sign I wasn't supposed to see it. Um, but it's, it, I guess it was one of the longest lunar eclipses in 580 years. Just like the partial was six hours long or so. Um, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long one. It was notable as the first of our eclipse series, as the eclipses after next month, after December, will we'll move out of the Sagittarius-Gemini axis into Taurus and Scorpio. So it was a nice sort of warm-up and preview of what the next year and a half or so is going to be like. A gentle introduction. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that the very next day, all of a sudden, we got a bunch of news stories. One of them was that um, jo just Joe Biden underwent a medical procedure, I think, the next day, the day after the eclipse, and briefly handed over uh, power to his vice president, to Harris, who then briefly was like president for like a few hours or acting president while he was under anesthesia. Which was really notable, both in terms of you know we had talked about and actually mentioned Biden's chart last month because of where that eclipse or where the eclipses and some of the transits at the time were falling between his sixth, twelfth, and first houses, um, and they did apparently remove something, but it's not necessarily clear that it's like problematic at this point. But it was interesting nonetheless. Do you, do you um, know what the procedure was? Do we know anything about it? I thought it was a colonoscopy. Yeah, it yeah. was a colonoscopy, which is like again ironic. Also very because, scorpionic. Well, you look yeah, at we're the, talking you know, about the happy zodiac man with the the signs on the different regions of the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Let me pull up his chart really quickly because that's why we're talking about it. Because Mars was going through his twelfth house, um, which is Scorpio, and also the lunar eclipse would be falling in his sixth house, which is Taurus. It's one of the weird. Things not just about the lunar eclipse, but also the solar eclipse. For all of my Sag Sagittarius rising friends, I've been noticing is that these two eclipses then fall in the sixth and the first house, which very much health have to do with like health and like bodily maintenance type things. Yeah. So that was interesting and perhaps notable in terms of the future. You know, we'll we'll see where where that goes in the future. Not to speculate too much. Um, what else happened? Well, just on that too, um, that it, for the U.S. with those that brief period of time where Vice President Harris was actually in that presidential role, or at least wielding that power, it's the first time that a woman has held that role. Uh, not only a woman, but a uh, an African American, Indian American woman holding that role. And um, I'm trying to. I know she's born at the exact full moon in cardinal signs. Was she born at a lunar eclipse? No. No. Okay. No, because she has uh, she has Rahu in the first in uh, I think it's Gemini, and then um, the sun and moon are in uh, Aries and Libra. I've just been tracking her f full moon because Pluto is T squaring it by transit and. Will come into exact alignment with that in February, um, which is the same time as the exact uh, U.S. Pluto return, and so that's that's T squaring her Sun Moon opposition. Mm. Um, so okay. yeah, as a as a full Moon figure, and then this moment of her stepping into power under the lunar eclipse seemed quite interesting. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that it was like a long lunar eclipse, and like an eclipse, it's like this temporary period where something is obscured or is, is eclipsed, is occulted, and in that period of time, like Biden himself went under for several hours and then came back. So interesting symbolism there. Um, just looking at her chart, so she's Gemini rising, and uh, her Jupiter's at 24 Taurus, pretty close to where that eclipse took place at 27 Taurus, and Jupiter's the ruler of both her 10th house of career and her 7th house of partners. So maybe something related to that. Yeah, that's, yeah that makes uh, sense. That does make sense. So close to her Jupiter and coming more into that um, prominence. Right. Yeah. So that'll be interesting because that was just the first eclipse. So question about that then whether subsequent activations of that eclipse series couldn't um, bring us back to that or some sort of similar scenario in the future for some reason. Yeah, something to pay attention to for sure going forward. Yeah, so um, so the eclipse happened. That news came out that day. I think the the COVID variant news started coming out within the next few days after that. There were also other news stories. Um, Becca, I know you had one about um, in intercepting asteroids. Yeah, this happened. Um, SpaceX launched its DART mission, and um, that stands for the double asteroid redirection test. And so it's a mission to be able, if an asteroid is threatening Earth, to actually be able to deflect it. And they launched that on, uh, what was it, 1021 PM on November 23rd, uh, so in uh, out of California, Santa Barbara. And just thinking of the Mars, Saturn, Uranus, I, I often think of major space exploration breakthroughs as relating more to Uranus-Pluto alignments, because we do often see that, you know, kind of the drive and push on technology. But the fact that this technological push had to do with, a, it was kind of a defense system, that Saturnian, you know, uh, preventing what happened to the dinosaurs happening to human beings, and that it's the technology, Uranus, that would allow that deflection to happen. So like this kind of technological shield wall being put up. Um, so yeah, that that went through, I guess, successfully, and they're going to be tracking the uh, direction of the asteroid that they, they did redirect. It wasn't one that was coming towards Earth that was threatening it. It was just one that they could use for this particular test. I wonder if they're taking votes for which asteroid to blow up next, and if so, if we could Vote on like Chiron maybe as the next one to blow up because if I was going to blow up any asteroids, I think Chiron would be up there Chiron's on my not list. An That's all right. Whatever it is, let's just blow it out of the sky and see if it is no <laughs> no longer no longer relevant on astrological charts. Just because it's kind of an annoying thing to have it. I don't know if anyone's had a Chiron transit here, but not my not my favorite transit. Yeah, I guess we haven't really done the empirical data on what happens when a planetary body that we're tracking is suddenly destroyed and taken out of the system. Well, so to be fair, right. to the Chris, our question. Um, so the 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 myth of, of Chiron is that um, you know he is half immortal, and so even though he is racked with pain and poison, he cannot die. He's really you know asking for euthanasia. And so maybe you know maybe maybe there's a, a mythic case to be made for for a, a mythic case in support of your your hypothesis, Chris. Your uh, 
uh, your plan test. <laughs> we could okay. mythically take that further because if I recall correctly, he does finally get to die because- Yeah, that, that's the end of the quest. Is that, That's the win condition, is um, non-existence. Well, isn't it made possible because to free Prometheus from being bound to the rock and having his liver eaten out every day, then- um, some immortal has to be willing to die in his place. Mm -hmm. And so Chiron says, yes, absolutely. And so Uranus is freed. So if we use technology to, uh, I'm making the Prometheus-Uranus uh, <laughs> relationship there. Um, so using technology, we could free uh, Chiron from from his suffering. From life, from existence. I don't, I don't like that idea, no. though. I think uh, they're going for much smaller I don't think it was bodies. actually a good idea. I just... All right. <laughs> just trying to support my fellow podcaster here. Yeah. Chris is like, enough of this. <laughs> my, my dreams. All right. Um, let's move on. Why don't we Why don't we start getting into the, the... The only other news thing I had to mention was that the Astrology Podcast hit 100,000 YouTube subscribers, which is kind of an exciting um, milestone in podcasting history for the show. So... Thanks everybody that subscribes to us on YouTube and leaves comments and all that stuff. We really appreciate it, and it's made a huge difference over the history of the podcast over the past few years. Yeah, congratulations, Chris. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. That's I'm waiting amazing. to see if they'll send me one of those uh, fancy like YouTube plaques of one of the play buttons once you hit 100,000 subscribers. But apparently, there's they have to like check your channel and make sure it's okay. So I'm about to find out if they do that for astrology channels, and I guess we'll see. But yeah, there was a bunch of stuff that happened in the two days after the eclipse. There's all that. There's the Rittenhouse verdict. Uh, Austria announced that it's going full lockdown. There were hundreds of thousands of people on the streets in Melbourne protesting. It was just like, ev like you said, it was everything um, in those next couple of days. Yeah, the eclipse really acted as some sort of trigger or or some sort of uh, spotlight that really shone the light on issues that were already there and were bubbling up. But then all of a sudden, it just sort of like broke forth. After that point, yeah. Well, the you know the the sort of myth metaphor for where the eclipses come from is Rahu and Ketu in the Vedic story. It comes out of the the churning of the ocean of milk, and that churning or stirring things up is very much an action that the that the eclipses have in in real time as well as in myth time. It just you know it stirs the pot, right? It doesn't it doesn't have to add anything new to the pot, but it just stirs it up. Mm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. Well, speaking of eclipses, that actually is a nice segue. Why don't we start talking about the astrology of December? And let's first kind of zoom out and talk about the big picture stuff of the main things for this month. And then later we'll get into a week by week breakdown um, of the four weeks of the month. So the major things that are happening this month are we have the solar eclipse, which is occurring in Sagittarius. We have Venus stationing retrograde in Capricorn conjunct Pluto, and we have Saturn squaring Uranus uh, exact for the third exact time this year, and then finally Jupiter moving into Pisces and departing from Aquarius basically permanently at this point for the next 11 or 12 years. So I think those are the major things that we're going to talk about and focus on today, and that's kind of a lot of astrology. Like Usually just one of those would be sufficient, like one or two of those would be sufficient to spend a forecast episode on. But instead, we've got like four or five major things happening this month. Yeah, it's going to be a really kind of dramatic end to the year, too. It feels like with that, just so many events and um, 
if you if one uses very wide orbs also i just would add in that that the saturn pluto conjunction which was so dominant last year it leaves the 15 degree orb um at the end of of december and so that's also something i've been tracking in uh relation to all of this as well that that's really finally totally pulling apart and uh we won't have a conjunction of those two for about 40 years. Yeah, I was looking at because um some of the in the Changing of the Gods series which is finally going to premiere in January, they're sending out previews and I watched the first half of it and they focused on the Saturn or the Uranus Pluto conjunction in the 1960s and how if you give that a 15 degree orb it lines up pretty well with that decade. And that was a pretty compelling, I thought, example of that 15 degree orb working in practice for conjunctions, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That lasted 1960 to 1972. And um, that does really, you know, when you think about the 60s and it kind of bleeds into the 70s, uh, the eruption of cultural movements and changes and revolutions of that time uh, really seems to fit. So. Uh, I've been using that 15 degree orb for the Saturn Pluto conjunction, at least a little narrower for um, squares and trines, but I use 15 degrees for conjunctions and op oppositions. So, and 10 for squares? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what does the range of the current or the one that just ended or is just ending the Saturn Pluto square, what's the range on that in terms of years if you give it a 10 degree orb? Um, with the with the Saturn Pluto conjunction, I was looking at 15 degrees. So that would come in in 2018 and then end in uh, December of 2021 with a 10 degree orb for the Saturn Uranus square. We see that coming in at the beginning of 2020 and actually staying within those 10 degrees through partway through 2023. Um, so those are the dates I've been working within, at least. Here's the from Archetypal Explorer, which is our uh, the program we use to generate these charts, and this is actually also our sponsor this month. But Kyle sent over this graph, which shows the three exact Saturn-Uranus squares that we've experienced in 2021, and the very final one that we're experiencing here at the end of December. And a little discussion point we were having before this episode, before we started recording, that even though this is the third and final exact Saturn-Uranus square, it's going to get pretty close later next year around October timeframe of 2022 to going exact again, even if it doesn't go exact to the exact minute, right? Yeah, it, it, as you can see from the the graph there, there, there's still quite a there's still another very large hill to climb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean there. They'll be at 18 degrees in their respective signs, and so not down to the minute in terms of exactitude, but it's very, very close. Um, and I think we'll we'll probably be feeling that fairly dramatically. Yeah, so that's one of the things we're going to be talking about here that we want to expand on a little bit. The other major thing, of course, that we're going to be focused on this month is the Venus retrograde and Venus slowing down all month and uh, conjoining Pluto and stationing in Capricorn, I think within a degree or so of Pluto in December, um, going retrograde and then eventually towards the end of that retrograde hitting Pluto a couple of more times. So that's one of the other extended cycles that's really getting going here in December. 
Yeah, with the the Venus Pluto archetypal qualities, I mean, I would definitely be looking towards at a personal level for a lot of individuals looking towards relationships, looking towards your romantic connections, your friendships, but then seeing how Pluto is going to be shaping that. But I imagine we'll probably be hearing certain things in the news as well. I think I have noticed there tend to be spikes around, um, you know, unfortunately around, you know, sexual assault or sexual transgressions under Venus Pluto alignments that we hear more about that taking place um, or that coming more to the forefront or to light. Um, so with this long one, we might be seeing that in a more dramatic way. Yeah, one, well, as I was saying last month, there's a doubling up on the quality of, or on, there's a doubling up of looking at what's usually not visible in Venus's world, right? Because the, the nature of a retrograde is that Venus disappears from the sky. Right. Um, you can see Venus right now in the West. Um, and then Venus sinks lower and lower and lower and then is invisible for some weeks. Right. So it's a disappearance where, you know, <clears throat> where does the sun go during, uh, during the nighttime? It goes to the underworld. Right. Where does Venus go during that retrograde cycle? Venus goes to the underworld. Right. And that, that, uh, you can map that really fruitfully to the Inanna Ereshkigal story. Um, but, you know, just like, um, you know, every planet sort of has its own underworld, right? So what is, what are the caverns beneath the lush gardens, right? The Venus usually tends. And so you have, you know, you have, unre uh, you have unrealized desires, right? Which never got to have a body, never got to incarnate, right? Like maybe, <clears throat> maybe it's something like, oh, I wish I did that when I was young, right? And maybe it's something that you can do in the future, Sometimes you have to let go of something that's just not going to happen. Sometimes you resurrect something, right? From that, not, uh, as we say, yeah, from that underworld place. And then sometimes you see, um, you're privy to relational patterns that you weren't aware of. And maybe it's, you know, um, dire transgressions, which you find out about with somebody else. Maybe, you know, uh, maybe you be, you're treated to an x-ray view of your own relational architecture right and you maybe start to understand why things went the way they did rather than the way you thought they should have gone and there's all sorts of stuff down there and the the pluto pluto is doubling up on what's already um you know what's already a venus retrograde theme with that investigation yeah yeah with just venus retrograde on its own uh I just, I had one day, I think it was during the, the last Venus retrograde, I decided to sit down and look through every Venus retrograde period in my own life and realize that some kind of significant either breakup or loss of uh, a friendship or some um, kind of relational ending taking place in each one. And um, so with this align with the retrograde happening with Pluto, it does feel like you know, with Pluto, we often talk about how it intensifies or it pushes to an extreme what it touches. And so what is Venus in an extreme, in an extreme situation? And um, that probably things that are ready to to die, to be shed, to let go of relationally will get pushed by uh, under the uh, auspices of that transit and 
Um, but Pluto also has that rebirth quality. And so sometimes what needs to to die or to burn or be let go of actually makes space for something that's more beautiful, more we can think of like Venus coming back up from the underworld through that process. Um, this ascent and being more empowered. And so Venus, Pluto can also be just like that empowered beauty or the power of love and that we can really see such a wide spectrum coming through with that as as a potential. But uh, tend, tend your heart, I think, through these uh, through these weeks as we're moving through that Venus-Pluto alignment, because I think it does take a lot of kind of care and not just stuffing things back down below the surface, um, because that also can be an impulse of like, oh, that is ugly. I do not want to look at that. Um, and really kind of the repressive impulse that that Pluto can also bring up as well. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, on a, like, how should we say, an above the ground practical level, um, I tend to think that um, going through a Venus retro retrograde together is a good initial, uh, good early stress test for what people hope are long-term relationships. If you, you know, if you've gotten into a relationship since the last Venus retrograde, you know, you need to be, you need to be able to do a Venus retrograde with each other because they're going to come every year and a half forever. Right. And so it's a good, it's a good stress test. And I would say that is that like, is that like going on a vacation for the first time together? Like making sure you can live in a hotel room for like a week together, but it's the Venus retrograde version. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a little, it's a little under, it's like, um, Oh God, I'm getting images of like, uh, like a, like a, like a, like a fun house, like a cheap fun horror fun house ride where you both get onto the thing and it has its own pacing and it takes you, you know, through people in bad costumes trying to freak you out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's its own thing. And I would say the extended version of that is when you've done eight years together, then you've made it through all five Venus retros, right? And there, there will be, <laughs> there's only so much new, uh, to encounter at that point. But you know, if people are in an, uh, early in a relationship, it's a good. It's one. It's good to recognize, like, oh, this is um, this is probably not going to be the super easy part, right? The, but it is worth taking on as a how should we say, uh, as a as an intentional challenge. Like, okay, we're doing this. Let's 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 try to do a good job, rather than being like, I don't know, it doesn't feel like it did, uh, you know, two months ago. It's not supposed to. I just want to mention really briefly that one of the themes that sometimes comes up with Venus-Pluto aspects is themes of jealousy, um, either real or perceived, sometimes threats to a relationship from outside people. And sometimes it can be um, valid, and other times it can be the side of Pluto that can lead to like paranoia and like the relationship version of like conspiracy theories of like you know, thinking about all of the what ifs and, you know, trying to second guess people's motivations and things like that. Um, but jealousy as a potential um, keyword for, for Venus retrograde conjunct Pluto uh, to be aware of. Yeah. I like the, your, your application of paranoia there, right? Cause that, that's, that's what it is. Like, that's what it is. Like, oh, you know, when people will like, they don't do it, but they start thinking about, reading their partner's text messages or like oh, what you know what is that one person what are they, did they you know that, like that that um ungrounded yet inquisitive 
<laughs> frame of mind, which starts building cases for fears, uh, is certainly, you know, uh, I don't know, a killer of many relationships. And it will certainly be fed um, by this particular configuration. Yeah, just piggybacking on what both of you were saying of kind of looking into the shadows of the relationship and that when we do that, sometimes we can really discover something that's actually hidden in those shadows. And Venus-Pluto can also sometimes re relate to betrayal. And that's a more overt form. But with the paranoia piece, like looking into the shadows and something to be so conscious of when doing that is, are you actually like, – the paranoia can come up around our own material – and that what we're projecting into the other, we're actually, it's something that we need to turn around and look at. And that's something that at that personal, but also relational level, one could really take on during this period of time of like, okay, well, what shadow work do I need to do? What are the hidden parts of myself that I need to go into in order to be better in relationship? Um, the other thing, just the timing of this going over the the holidays and that the exact the second exact Venus Pluto conjunction is on December 25th it's on Christmas day and you know what holidays tend to bring up in a lot of people it it's can be very joyful for some but also can be quite challenging relationally for others and that Pluto can bring in the drama as well and so as with the stress test, as you were each talking about, whether it's going on vacation or surviving the Venus retrograde together, you know, surviving the holidays in a relationship or just in one's family dynamics is also uh, an important test to go through. So just knowing that that Venus Pluto is going to be so dominant around the holiday period. Yeah, yeah that's really I, good. I like, point. go ahead. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say it brings up ideas of like the past because um, the retrogrades sometimes with the Mercury retrogrades we're used to you know revising short term things from the past or written things but sometimes um, with the Venus retrograde it can be revisiting matters of the heart and sometimes that can be in terms of romantic relationships from the past but um, what Becca was saying is just reminding me that sometimes it can relate to other types of relationships in your life and revisiting. Your ways of relating to other people in your life in ways that maybe things have gone okay, but other ways where there's been dysfunctional dynamics. And for many people, nowhere is that most evident than in certain types of family dynamics. Yeah. The um so I had a bunch of keywords written down, and one of them well, one of them is um like the architecture of desire, because this is, you know, this is still Capricorn, right? Like the, this is Venus and Pluto, um, but in the context of very, very structural Capricorn. Um, and what you were saying, Becca, about like, you know, the the particular cauldron or uh you know, the these scenes taking place amidst like family holiday, like very real concrete things, right? And that you can see, like Chris was saying, that like you can see someone's relational, how should we say, their 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 relational patterns um, being anchored to and created in sort of friction with and harmony with the family pattern that they came out of, right? That there's like an architecture, there are blueprints, there there are structures to these relatings. Um, it's not 
you know, it's not, uh, should we say Neptunian or free floating. Um, it does reference the past. And in terms of the past, what I was thinking earlier, in terms of, you know, if we're doing, um, some underworld imagery, the underworld is the, you know, the realm of the not yet alive or an end no longer alive, right? Like the sort of complementary flip side, uh, to being. And if we're dealing with ghosts, right? Um, if we're talking about relationship paranoia, um, that may look like a projection or simply a delusion about a given person, but it almost certainly has roots in something that did happen to a person. You know, and if, if we're talking about being haunted, right, by past pains. Um, and one of the things you do within the underworld is you put the dead to rest, right? There's a like, actually letting what is dead die so that you're not um seeing all of your current relationships in the context of this one terrible thing and then the converse of course is that and if you look at underworld stories it's bringing somebody or something up from the underworld to make what you know to what uh, what was slumbering beneath the veil bringing that into your life right uh, recognizing through your your venus retrograde uh, feelings and cognitions that, oh, I actually do want this thing. And I buried that, you know, a decade ago. And that needs to have a place in the sun. But that's sort of like deciding the inter in indeterminate state of something where it's like, yeah, I'm not with that person anymore, but I'm still reacting to that experience. Or I kind of want this, but I haven't made it a part of my life. Like coming out of the Venus retrograde as it goes direct and arises again in the East, like with how should we say a firmer decision or like this, this stays or this goes. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really beautifully put how you're describing that and the, like the architecture of relationship that we do inherit from our, our family systems and especially from our parents and whatever our parents' relationships looked like, we're going to be imprinted by that. I, I wish I could remember right now the name of, uh, the scholar who was, he, I think he was a psychologist who was doing research into uh, into love. He has a TED talk called "Why You'll Always Marry the Wrong Person," and How he's he? basically saying, with, you know, it's a catchy title, and um, he is looking at the fact that the kind of people we are drawn to to be in relationship with that it actually mirrors the sort of the suffering that we are used to in relationship with our parents. Like, oh, that that familiarity uh, is actually that familiar suffering of what we grew up with. And so it's almost like we're doomed to repeat these patterns until we come into awareness of them and consciousness and uh, are able to transmute them. And that's another kind of Plutonic theme is transmutation. And within that, uh, Capricornian container. Like if you really hold the relational container with someone, whether it's a partnership or with your family, and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna ride this out within the container that we're creating, and then with it's like an alembic, an alchemical container where we can go through that relational transformation, and it's probably gonna be really messy and ugly and so forth. But how much can come forward and um, this, these conditions of the, the Venus retrograde in Capricorn conjunct Pluto, it does feel like it offers that kind of alembic or container to go into 
those spaces with someone or, you know, romantic relationship, but also in terms of the love in a family context. And um, yeah, having the opportunity to move through some of those things. Yeah. And sometimes this idea of, um, you know, letting things lie, sometimes in order to do that, you have, things have to be dug up. And it reminds me of some of the discussion we had a few months ago. I think it was some of the Venus and Scorpio discussion, but broadly speaking, archetypally, even if we're not using Pluto as a ruler of Scor- Scorpio, there's still some overlap there with this um, tendency for Pluto to want to get to the bottom of things or to dig things up and to dig in deep and dig up the past, especially. And one of the things about Venus retrogrades, it goes retrogrades for retrograde for 40 days and 40 nights. But something that's very important about it is that it goes retrograde in the same spot in the zodiac every eight years. So it does tie in the past um, in eight-year increments from right now to eight years earlier. So to the same period in like late December of 2013, eight years earlier, there was another Venus retrograde. Or if you go back eight years before that to late 2005 or to 1997 or to 1989, all of those are going to be Venus retrogrades in roughly the same area of the zodiac, either late Capricorn or at one point early Aquarius. Um, but that does tie the retrograde back into our past history. And for some people, some people are more sensitive to Venus retrogrades in general, maybe due to how their chart is set up. Um, but other people situationally in certain years can be more tied into certain retrograde cycles. Um, but one thing to pay attention to is just if this retrograde has regularly in those eight-year increments been important to you or has been tied into your life story in some significant way, then this current retrograde could be a continuation of part of that narrative as well. Yeah, and we, uh, as we say, I, I think we have been right to focus on the relational, but for some charts in some houses, um, like if this is in your second house. Um, this the venus means things are venus connotes um moves things other than um uh, relationships it can also be your relationship to valuable things to works of art you know to to luxuries and jewels etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so venus retrogrades can also be money things i absolutely see like the flow of you know the flow of cash is a venusian thing it's wonderful <laughs> right when it, when it's flowing abundantly and clear um and um you know kinks in that flow um they they create emotions right they create venu- negative venusian emotions that's something you've wondered about in a mundane sense as well in terms of like world economics or other things right yeah absolutely like the flow of valuables right is a, is one of the is something that's affected by venus makes me think of the supply chain de- uh, delays that have been building up or mounting over the past few months yeah, well, and you just think about the um, the the simple fact that this is all kind of going down right around Christmas when there's mm-hmm. the yearly spike in demand for goodies, right? Mm-hmm. And they're not just goodies like I want this, I will buy this, but it's literally goodies to be given as a gift, which is a you know adds in a much more relational component to it. And it's happening in the Saturn ruled sign of Capricorn, which is more constrictive or, or restricting things, and I mean. Pluto itself also can sometimes be restrictive or constrictive, especially when it gets together with Venus and ties Venus up, so to speak. Well, and speaking of restriction, you know, we've been talking about this for, I don't know, half the year. Um, Like, 
this looks like not for everybody but if we're looking for what would be the astrological signatures of a very quarantiney christmas for a lot of people like venus stuck with pluto in a saturn ruled sign hanging out not just with pluto but like those it's right around the degrees that the saturn pluto conjunction was right like that that area is still probably bearing some imprint from that you know once every four decades conjunction yeah talk about the going back into the memories as well of um the a couple of things actually on the one hand very very quarantiney kind of holidays as you were saying um but also maybe for some people if they are getting together it might be like the first time of seeing each other since um i um for thanksgiving i saw my dad for the first time since before the uh pandemic it's like the first hug we shared since february of 2020 and um just that kind of re really meaningful loving revisiting of like oh wow i, I forgot what this was like literally um to hug another you know to hug my parents um so yeah that how it's kind of bringing in the that degree point as well as you were bringing up austin uh, in terms of the uh, saturn pluto conjunction right pinging those that cluster of experiences yeah i can't believe it's been two years and that also means it's been two years like around this time late november of 2019 we were recording like the 2020 year ahead forecast and jupiter was still in sagittarius and we were having a great time and that eclipse happened in Capricorn, and then the Saturn-Pluto conjunction ha happened in Capricorn, and then everything just started cascading immediately after that? Yeah, I mean, we, we were having a pretty good time, but we were also all kind of horror-struck by 2020 because we spent basically a week like where all of our conversations were just looking at 2020. Um, and, you know, we tried to be realistic and helpful without being overly grim but also without pulling punches and you know it was uh <laughs> i don't think any of us came away from that expecting uh, uh a year of uh of joy expansion growth love etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah definitely um so one other thing we need to talk about about this month that's a major thing is uh the second half of eclipse season with that solar eclipse that's happening in Sagittarius, which is the final eclipse of the Sag-Gemini eclipse series, which started sometime last year in 2020, depending on where you want to place it. It either started at the end of the year, or it started in the middle towards June of 2020, but regardless, it's been bouncing back and forth between those two signs, and we finally get the completion of that eclipse series with this eclipse. Um, so I know a lot of mutable rising people that are uh, going to be ending a major chapter that they've been going through over the past year and a half or so. Um, yeah, so it seems like a pretty notable eclipse. As a uh, Sagittarius son, I have to say I'm really glad that it's moving on. It's been a rough year and a half. And uh, yeah, the feeling that ending does, f that eclipse does feel like it symbolizes a lot of the endings that we're seeing around this time where you know it's it's the last exact saturn uranus uh square if you use a wide orb for world transits it's the end of the saturn pluto conjunction what will come to with jupiter 
uh, moving out of Aquarius as well, just this feeling of like, it does sound a little cliche, but just major endings being symbolized by that. And the part of me that wants to have hope for 2022 feels very nervous and shy of like, is it is it okay to have hope for things changing going forward? But also, you know, when we look at the shifting transits, there is something that's going to be changing in, in a variety of areas. And um, I think a, a good mantra during, at least for me during Saturn-Pluto periods, but it can be applied more widely is, you know, this too shall pass. And that phrase keeps coming up for me when I contemplate this particular eclipse of um, maybe it's marking in some way that this passage of you know what you were each speaking to of like looking back at 2020 and 2021 what extraordinarily intense years for humanity and for the earth community in general yeah well and it's nice also at the end of the month we have not just the completion of the sagittarius eclipse series but also jupiter more permanently moving into pisces which i feel like is good for a lot of the mutable rising people that you're getting not just the end of this major period of beginnings and endings coming to completion with the this last eclipse, but also um, Jupiter more firmly. We just got a little bit of a preview of Jupiter and Pisces last summer for a few months, but here we're going to get a solid like five months of Jupiter cruising through Pisces and um, expanding and sort of stabilizing things for the mutable sign people for a little while. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, um, I, I personally see the the next eclipse phase, which we've sort of taken one step into with the Taurus eclipse last week. Um, but the Taurus Scorpio series is actually being an intensification of, of existing challenges because it's now churning the fixed signs, which are already, there's already a lot going on with the Saturn Uranus. And even though we get the last exact Saturn Uranus this month, they get really close and stay really close. And so I guess I've been seeing that as actually an amping up of exactly what we've been doing of the Saturn Uranus. I am overjoyed um, about everything Jupiter will be doing, none of which involves being in the same sign as Saturn next year. Um, but Jupiter is, you know, in a, in a, a broad sense, Jupiter is potential solutions to problems or new good things. Whereas the Saturn Uranus, et cetera, et cetera, those are the existing problems and those aren't really going anywhere. They're actually getting churned. Yeah. Fixed signs are not in for a great ride next year as a continuation of some of the themes that we've already seen this year. Um, it's just the mutable signs may be catching a little bit more of a break for a little bit. Um, but in terms of that, in terms of Jupiter moving into Pisces, that is something we also need to mention because while that um, is good for, for mutable signs and might be good in some general sense, it, it felt pretty good last summer for that like three months that Jupiter was in Pisces. We had the nice illusion that the pandemic was over and everything was going back to normal in some parts of the world for a little while before Jupiter retrograded and went back into Aquarius for unfinished business, and it was clear that things were not quite over yet. Um, with Jupiter departing from Aquarius, though, it's kind of going to be leaving Saturn to its own devices in Aquarius for the next year or two, and as well as the Saturn Uranus square and everything else. So there's a little part of me that, that makes me a little nervous for some of the fixed sign people just not having Jupiter there to offset or balance things out as it has been off and on over the past year. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's um, and we we got a little peek about peek at that. You know, we we talked about that right before the Jupiter's movement, the Jupiter, uh, the Jupiter's movement into Pisces, and then um, you know, we heard from some people after it was back in Aquarius, and some people who were very fixed sign heavy were like, "Yeah, I saw the good Jupiter and Pisces stuff. Um, I'll take Jupiter backstopping Saturn and mellowing Saturn over that any day." You know, for my particular chart. Not for my chart, but for their chart. It feels like they're going to move, you know, literally they're moving into different domains, but it makes me wonder in terms of like event-wise, if we'll be seeing kind of dis more distinct um, Jupiter and Pisces, and then we're moving pretty quickly into the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction next year. And th then the the contrast with uh the you know saturn continuing to stay in aquarius and the square to uranus and the way i've been thinking about it moving forward into next year not to get too far past december but it's it's opening up here is you know when you've been working you know you've had a really hard day and like your body aches and you're in pain and everything just feels like it's going wrong and then you have that lovely warm hot tub, maybe with a glass of wine at the end of the day. And the hot tub's not actually going to fix any of your problems, but it gives you a break from it. And there can just be that kind of healing salve that you can at least lean into, even though it it doesn't actually put together what's been falling apart or kind of help heal the maybe the schisms that have been unfolding. Um, it'll be more like two different arenas. Yeah, it's very separate. And there can be, how should we say that that Jupiter in Pisces will will for, you know, X amount of people um create, how should we say, bring about and nurture um very quantifiable good things, but they're not going to be the type of things that fix the Saturn problems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? There's no aspect. There's just not like it's a different good. It's not the it's not the good that fixes that bad. It's like an entirely separate form of good. Like if my work life is falling apart and I want to just suddenly quit my job or something, which can be a Saturn Uranus phenomenon, um, then you know that that hot tub at the end of the day isn't going to make it any better. But it does give us some relief of like you know what I'm just not going to think about that for a moment until the next day starts up. Perfect. Um, all right. I think we're at the halfway point now, and we've talked about the big picture stuff and kind of zoomed out. So this might be a good time to transi transition into the second half of this with talking about more of a, a small breakdown of each week of December and talking about the astrology. Before we do that, um, in order to transition there, I wanted to talk about our sponsor, which is Archetypal Explorer. Which has been a, a sponsor of ours for for a few years now because I love the transit graphs and timelines that they provide. And you actually know Kyle, who runs Archetypal Explorer, right, Becca? Yeah, we were in graduate school together uh, in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at CIAS. All the acronyms of that place: California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, and so I got to see it from its earliest beginnings, and that he wanted to bring forward a a tool that could visually represent in a very you know beautiful way the the transits and it, being able to actually get that sense for uh the curvature um and i think 
I think it's a really valuable tool just because, especially people who are more visually oriented, um, wanting to see the transit movement through time. It's um, been really impressive to see him develop it over the years. I know he's put so much hard work into it, uh, just hours upon hours, days, weeks uh, in there creating all of his own um, I don't even have the right language to describe it. I'm I'm so not a um, back end of technology person, but you know, from what he's shared, it's just been such an act of devotion. And uh, he worked as well with um, with Rick uh, Tarnas, with um, my dad, to uh, bring forward the um, archetypal descriptions of the planetary combinations. And uh, so that's a part of it as well. Um, so yeah, I, I use it personally and it's just been really amazing to see um, what he's brought forward with this. Yeah, yeah. totally. So uh, the short version for those not familiar or haven't heard about it before on the podcast, Archetypal Explore is an online astrology program featuring a suite of visual and interactive astrological tools. It's built for the modern astrology enthusiast um, and Archetypal Explorer aims to provide all the necessary resources in one place to engage in a rich and rewarding astrological practice. So it's a membership-based program with a seven-day free trial period that you can try out in order to get started. So you can find out more information at archetypalexplorer.com. And one of the cool things, as you were just talking about, is it shows the transit graphs, like this one for the Saturn-Uranus uh, squares that we've been talking about and already showing, but it also provides some delineations both from Richard Tarnas's work, where here, for example, he gives you some of the positive manifestations or some of the challenging manifestations of Saturn Uranus square from a, a book that he wrote on the topic or, or some sort of manual. So, for example, some of the positive ones it lists are harmonious synthesis of the impulse for change and the impulse for order between creative freedom and discipline control, innovation and tradition. And those are some of the positives. And then it just keeps going with. Other positive or negative things. Um, recently, Kyle also integrated some delineations from Ren Butler's text, The Archetypal Universe, which also gives some great delineations of some of the archetypal principles of certain combinations. And I'm really excited about how he's ex expanding the program to incorporate some of this additional interpretive principles um, because it's much more up to date. Like I did a book recommendation. Um, Earlier this month on the podcast, and I recommended my top eight like beginner astrology books, and some people were complaining like, "Hey, why is there no Rob Han planets in transit on there?" And while that is a good book, it was written in the 1970s, and it's very much some parts of it are very dated at this point, so that it doesn't even necessarily represent Rob Han's own personal practice at this point, 50 years later, because he's grown and changed as an astrologer as we all do, and. I think he is writing a revised version of that that should be out at some point soon, at which point I would certainly recommend it. But in the meantime, it's nice to see some more recent sort of delineation text for transits like this being available in, in different software programs. I love uh, Ren Butler's book, The Archetypal Universe, because not only does it have planetary combinations, like two planets, it has three. And the I haven't come across where there are three described quite in the way that he takes it on um, and just have found 
reading those so enjoyable. It's just so enriching if you have like a triple conjunction or a T-square or something where you really can't describe uh, it by just combining the two and like trying to imagine combining the other two. So it's a really great way to deepen into those more complex combinations. Yeah, I, I love that. The, um, I actually had a unit in my year three class and which I scheduled um, to overlap with my own excuse to be obsessed with uh, three planet combinations earlier this year. Um, because there, it sounds like you'd be getting into this just wild uh, numbers of permutation. But if, 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 for example, you just stuck with the, the, the initial seven, you're only looking at 36 combinations, right? Um, and then you can build up from there. You can add the nodes, you can add, you know, the invisible, the, the, the invisible giants, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not, it's not this like memorizing 300 things. Um, you can start building it up and there are pieces in older texts that give you you know, like a nice 2000 year old Vettius Valens style, like, okay, these three do these things together. These three do these things together. I, I it's something I, I, I think should be eventually part of everybody's sort of like first two years of astrology is like learning, learning the, like the basic principles of combination, right? What, do, what do these three get together and do? So I love that that's in there. Yeah, well, that was useful this past month, especially where we had the Mars-Saturn square and the Mars-Uranus opposition happening virtually simultaneously. So helpful for instances like that. So people can find out more information at archetypalexplorer.com. All right, so let's transition into the second part of this and looking at each week of December in detail, starting with the very first week. And right off the bat, very first thing we have, very first day of the month, is Neptune stationing direct in the sign of Pisces. And this isn't actually one of our like standout major things happening in terms of like the astrology of December and in terms of like major world-shaking events. But I think it's it's worth um, dwelling on just for a moment here because it's part of a continuing and ongoing sort of story that's been developing over the past decade of Neptune slowly making its way through Pisces. And um, Austin, you and I have talked previously, and I started talking to other people about this recently because there was a little bit of a wave of anti-astrology sentiment this month, and it was interesting for me was to there? see. I, yeah, I, there, I, I I think I logged into Twitter once this month, maybe twice for like ninety seconds. So I haven't really been watching that part of the world. Yeah, you've been a little off social media, but there was a little, little, little bit of anti-astrology stuff going on, and it was interesting for me to see some of the new generation of astrologers reacting to and experiencing some skeptical critiques of astrology for the first time. And it made me a little nervous, honestly, because many people were just not prepared for it and weren't sure. And there was a whole variety of different responses to it, some of which were okay, and some of which were maybe not as good. Um, but it reminded me of the discussion you and I had about why is astrology so popular right now? And one of the points that you've always made is that you think it has partially to do with Neptune and Pisces, because it's not just astrology you've pointed out. There's been a whole variety of things that have become more popular popular over the past few years. I mean, yeah, magic it, it, in the in the broadest sense is um, you know, it's ten times as popular just like astrology is than you versus if we look back 15 years ago. It's just totally different. Yeah. So, um, you know, and that has its positive sides in terms of 
astrology has really grown and flourished over the past several years especially, but then there's also been some other weird stuff that's grown and flourished, including, let's say, for lack of a better term, like not good conspiracy theories, like flat earth theory having like a little, you know, revival for a period there, which was kind of weird and stuff like that. And so there's been a question then you and I have talked about, which is just if that is a signature for right now, is there an end point end point to that or is there a point where um may- maybe there's a little bit more opposition to astrology at some point and what would that look like both practically speaking and from an astrological standpoint? It's funny actually because the basically the entire time that I've had a strong relationship to astrology has been with Neptune in Pisces. And uh that of course I'm drawing a blank on it now. When exactly did it ingress? Was it two thousand? Austin, as the Pisces, you're the official person that could answer that question. Yeah, so there was uh there's a little toe dip in 2011 and then it moved back and then 2012 was the um not going back into aquarius ingress so there's a taste in 2011 but like the the one that stuck was in 2012 okay yeah in my mind i was holding it a little bit earlier um the i was basically drawn towards astrology beginning in 2010 and um really kind of took a deep dive into that uh you know ever since and so um the neptune and pisces experience for me has felt a lot like well this is the water i'm swimming in and um you know looking to an earlier period as a younger astrologer i'm kind of trying to remember okay what did that what were the events going on before when uh, Neptune was in Aquarius and and trying to recalibrate that, but not from the inside, um, the inside of the transit. But it, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really valid point that you're bringing up, Austin or Chris. You were bringing it up as well that this turn towards astrology and magic and um, more esoteric paths as well has seemed to correlate largely with Neptune and Pisces. Um, of course, that's overlapping as well so much with that big Uranus-Pluto square and um, how many, you know, sometimes repressed ways of knowing or fields as well as, you know, people and so forth are brought back, um, kind of brought forward in a new way and re-engaged with. And, you know, maybe in part it's the dialogue between those two. Um but yeah, with the the turning direct on December first, you know, turns direct at, at twenty degrees, and um, when we have that kind of turning point for anyone who has any planets within right around twenty degrees, and particularly mutable signs, it's such a Neptune is strange where it's so subtle but utterly pervasive at the same time. And so when we try and actually pinpoint like, oh, this is what's going on with Neptune, uh, I personally at least can find it's much harder. To, it's like a slippery fish. It, it just keeps eluding our grasp, um, being reminded of how Jung tried to describe archetypes, which are also very Neptunian, where 
the more you try and describe it, the more it slips away from you. I feel like that's happening to me right now as I'm trying to speak about this. Um, and it takes the the interaction with like another planet to be like, oh, okay, there's Neptune. That's what's happening. Um, like I, f I felt like that was really distinct in the years when Saturn was squaring Neptune, like 2014, 15, 16. Um, it was like, oh, there's Neptune because you could see it through the lens of Saturn. And maybe we'll get a different version of that with Jupiter, um, much more pleasant one where this totally pervasive, slippery element that, you know, how do you describe water when you're in it, if that makes sense? Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm just Neptuning out on this Neptune and Pisces as I try and respond. <laughs> One sort of common Neptune framework is dreams, right? And um, dreams make lots of sense while you're in them. And then when you're not in that dream, you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just knew that the fact that he had a green ear meant um, that uh, I finally had to pay for the thing I felt guilty about from 55 years ago. And in the dream, that made perfect sense. Oh, it's the green ear of guilt, right? And there's like no doubt in the dream that that's what it means. But then, you know, you wake up and you're like, um, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, uh, like a, you know, a, a hole from, uh, from the deep sea, like everything looks a little bit different on at surface pressure and you're not entirely sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, so this is important because we, so we have the station there, but then Jupiter heading into Pisces and ramping up to the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction in Pisces next year. And I just, I kind of wonder if that's not going to be the high water mark of part of this Neptune um, in Pisces transit and the sort of explosion of um, the occult and other types of phenomenon related to that that have suddenly become so popular in the past few years. But also, when you sort of hit a high water mark, you know, reaching also peak saturation and sometimes, um, sometimes, you know, collectively, Things people starting to get over it, or, or starting to feel like it's too much, or it's gone too far. And the question of, you know, when do we get to that point of when has it kind of like jumped the shark, or or something like that? Yeah, or it's just not new and exciting. Like if you were going to be interested in astrology, you've had a lot of. <laughs> there's been a lot of exposure or magic or whatever. Like it's been around everywhere, you know, and, and like the people who, for whom that makes sense and there's something to click into and to build into their lives or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like that saturation is a, is a good, I think, way of thinking about it because that's water based, right? Adding more water to a saturated thing doesn't change it at all. Uh, I would also add, you know, for the, um, as far as like the high strangeness levels increasing around Neptune and Pisces times, you know, I remember when I wrote my piece, you know, many years ago about this Neptune's going to go into Pisces and I was looking at it. And, you know, the last time that it went in was the very beginning of the basically seance craze. Um, you know, when everybody was talking to the dead. Um, you know, where respectable, <laughs> uh, respectable drawing rooms were filled with the, the spectacle of spirit communication. Um, and that went for quite some time. Which, you know, when that's ever mentioned by astrologers, it's usually mentioned in a somewhat positive light, but there was like a negative light to that of people 
faking it as well. Like I think the Fo- the Fox sisters are usually mentioned first, but usually in like histories of it, they're portrayed as like faking ghosts and stuff like that in order to just like make money off of people. And so there was a there was a dark side to the like previous Neptune through Pisces transit in the people using illusions or or lying basically in order to deceive people in some way. Yeah, I think that with Neptune, it just opens all the doors. Like it just gives, you know, it 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 just massively widens um your sort of access to different stories and explanations and ideas about the world. And there's there's no like selecting for the good or selecting for the bad inherent to Neptune. Neptune just kind of melts um, you know, melts all the locks. Um, another thing from last time that was uh, I, I think appropriately ambivalent was right when the Fox sisters became famous um, for their necromantic shenanigans, um, the gold rush started, right? And there, you know, there was the American gold rush, but there were gold rushes happening um, in other places in the world at the same time. And you think about a dream, right? You know, you're like, and so it, it's interesting because it wasn't fake. Some people did, you know, cross thousands of miles and find like life changing generational wealth, you know, money in the ground. Other people traveled thousands of miles, got dysentery and, um, were, you know, just poor in a new place, right? Like that, that whole, you know, the, the that, that wasn't like a good thing or a bad thing. That dream wasn't real or fake. It was real and fake. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Neptune. That makes me think mm. of. I don't know if either of you have seen the price of Bitcoin recently, but it's up to something just ridiculous at this point, like $55,000 or something per Bitcoin, whereas a year ago it was very it was almost nothing. Yeah, and there's I think we can find a number of like gold rush stand-ins over the last was it it's been 10 years now, 10 11 years. Um, you know, in this part of the US and also I suppose where you are, Chris, um there's the green rush. Right. Where the decriminalization, the, the changing legal status of marijuana, people are like, great, I'm going to go and I'm going to do a farm. I'm going to make millions of dollars. And again, there's a lot of that around here and it's worked out for some people. It's not worked out for a whole lot more people. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I saw some like CBD doggy treats the other day in the apothecary, uh, in terms of just like the extent of, I don't know where it's all, all going at this point. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That also relates to the Neptunian uh, connection to non ordinary states of consciousness as well. And so, dreams when we're asleep, but, you know, entering into different states of consciousness, whether that's mediated through different substances or um, even different um, meditative or visualization practices and techniques, and how that line between um, you know, an image that we take as, you know, a divine or sacred truth versus a total illusion or a delusion. It's very hard to actually discern that. That word discernment, which is a much more Saturnian word, keeps coming to mind as we're talking about all these Neptunian things that and even like the skepticism or the pushback against astrology, how do you handle that? If you're an astrologer, how do you handle that gracefully? And um, being able to hold that 
skepticism or that discernment or even doubt within oneself to be really questioning. And when we're working with Neptunian themes, it's like we have to call that in even more as a counterbalance. Otherwise, we can just get swept away or swept downstream or... um, Again, I'm thinking ahead to the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction, like viewing the world through rose-colored glasses and, um, yeah, being being deluded, being confused, which can certainly have a, a problematic side to it. Yeah. One of the things that just makes me nervous that I think most of the astrologers that have come up in the last decade haven't had to practice astrology or or be public and sort of out in the world with it and their practice and belief in it um, and have to deal with um, a organized skeptical movement that's antagonistic and aggressively against it or trying to shut it down because they view it as as something that's bad and negative and is harming people and it's going to be really interesting to watch because of the skeptic movement, that's the other thing that happened this decade is that it just completely fell apart and largely self-imploded because their leadership kind of fizzled out for the most part, and some of their older leaders sort of passed away and are no longer around. But it'll be interesting to see what happens when that's reformulated at some point in the future. And um, yeah, I think some of the younger astrologers are going to have to sort of prepare themselves to deal with that in ways that they haven't uh, up till now. I wonder if that may correlate as well, like this there's going to be a Saturn Neptune conjunction in 2025 of like gearing up for that and have your arguments prepared as soon as Neptune goes into Aries Saturn also goes in and like conjoins it right at the same time and that's been the one Austin and I keep talking about is that Saturn Neptune conjunction yeah it's 5 years of Saturn Neptune mm. okay <sighs> good times all right all right back to the pre- <laughs> present cuz we're getting ahead of ourselves yep. and looking at the future as we do as astrologers um, so that's on the very first day of the month. On the fourth of the month, we have the solar eclipse in Sagittarius. We've already talked about that pretty extensively, so I don't think we need to dwell on it any further here. That brings us into the second week of December, where on Monday the 6th, we have a Mars-Pluto sextile, followed by a Mercury-Neptune square on Tuesday the 7th, and then a Mars-Jupiter uh, square on Wednesday, December 8th. Um, later that week, we get to a Mercury sextile Jupiter aspect and the first Venus Pluto conjunction on Saturday, December 11th, which is one of our key kind of core aspects this month because it's really, even though that's the exact aspect, because Venus stations retrograde after, it's really going to be lingering pretty much all month. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, with um, Mars coming into the alignment with Pluto and then Jupiter very quickly, it's a good opportunity to feel into different ways that Mars can show up after what we've been through with no- in November of Mars with Saturn and Uranus of like, okay, well, what's Mars with Pluto and Jupiter where we get more of that um, intense drive. I'm glad it's a sextile, that intense drive of Mars-Pluto um, and the the highly potentially highly energized quality of the Mars Jupiter that can that can come in in a more um buoyant way um that yeah that Jupiter can lend to Mars where there's more like buoyancy confidence charisma coming forward Mars isn't um as much in the crunch as it's been in the last several weeks yeah that seems like a largely a pretty productive aspect there as long as people can 
um, not get too distracted or sort of deceived by the Mercury-Neptune square that's happening around the same time, and just the potential sometimes for self-deception can be um, a potentially undermining factor in some instances with that that transit. Hmm. Mercury-Neptune put it toward uh, writing more poetry rather than trying to convince yourself that you have a kind of clear and distinct idea of what's going on. Yeah, I like that poetry. It's a very creative aspect, and it's great for creative endeavors and the ability to just build a whole like world that doesn't necessarily exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, giving voice to the imagination. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, so that brings us to the end of the week and just that Venus-Pluto conjunction, which goes exact on the 11th, and some of the intensification of the themes we were talking about earlier in terms of the Venus-Pluto and in terms of the retrograde really ramping up um, happening towards the end of the week. Yeah, the um, you know the the road starts sloping decidedly downward at that point. You know, down down to Goblin Town. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and just you know, intense relationship themes coming up in a person's life, potentially both romantic and other types of partnership things as well. At this point, by the end of the second week of December. Um, this takes us into the third week of December, and the major thing that happens right away on Monday, the thirteenth, is Mars departs from Scorpio finally, and all the fixed signs rejoice, and Mars moves into the sign of Sagittarius for a good month or two, I think, at this point. Uh, and the same day, Mercury departs from Sagittarius and moves into Capricorn. So Mars into Sagittarius is probably one of our medium level transits this month in terms of importance, because that will be officially the ending point of Mars getting done with the square with Saturn and the opposition with Uranus, which really peaked in mid-November, but isn't really over until this point in the middle of December. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still in a fixed sign playing with all the fixed stuff, right? Until this point on the 13th. Right, as we can see with that square with Jupiter uh, the previous week there, it's still hitting that fixed sign stuff. So that's going to be nice in terms of relieving some of the tension and the period of stress testing finally being over to some extent in terms of the fixed signs. Um, it does put more emphasis. It's kind of interesting that this follows up the Sagittarius eclipse on the fourth of the month with Mars moving into Sagittarius only you know, a week or two later. So there is some emphasis on the sign of Sagittarius this month. Um, and even though that's the last of the eclipses in that sign at the beginning of December, um, there's still some sort of speeding up of events or turning up of the heat of the sign of Sagittarius that occurs at this point in this entire second half of December. Yeah, I mean, we, it's, we have a Mars K2 or Mars South Node conjunction, mm. right? During Mars's basically first week in Sag. And so, you know, even when there's not an eclipse uh, currently occurring, the nodes both carry that eclipse energy. They carry that eclipse power, um, and so you know Mars K two is uh, is very intense. Right. One of the things to watch out for um, is that so K two or the South Node has a very strong like cleansing, purification um, sort of energy, letting go sometimes forcefully. And I remember looking at this and thinking about like, oh, Mars K2, that might be like too, you know, going too hard on like a diet or a purific, you know, some sort of like 
liver cleanse or whatever. And this was a while ago, but I remember I was thinking that and then one happened and there, it was an incident where like 10 people died in a sweat lodge um, because they were going too hard. There was too much heat. The people weren't getting enough breaks. And, you know, it's, it's a spiritual purificatory practice, but too much, too much purification too quickly, right? Um, is not good for you. And there's a certain intolerance that you can get with Mars K2, where K2 is like, I would like, you know, I would like to be cleansed of, you know, <laughs> cleansed of whatever, like the accretions of experience and uh, negative emotions and the junk in my body. And then Mars can sometimes fast forward that, right? Where you, you're not letting go of things gently. You're just like, um, you know, you're like, I will, if I, you know, I will do 12 hours in this sweat lodge, or I will take three times as many colon cleanse pills, right? I want to, I want to clear that out. Right. And then, you know, the, you will truly then understand the power of the tail of the dragon. <laughs> Yeah. Well, speaking of colon cleanse pills, um, so somebody is mentioning like the US chart, and that brings up, of course, the, you know, we've been talking more and more over the past couple of years where I started out skeptical and, of course, have become more impressed with the Sibley chart, the US Sibley chart that has Sagittarius rising set for July 4th, 1776. It's still obviously open question and big issue, and there's different charts with the US, but there are some things. What's your stock answer, Austin? You have like a one sentence. You're like, it it resonates with something or there's symbolic importance to it or something like that? Oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's useful. doesn't mean other charts aren't useful. Um, there you go. W- w- a very quick and easy sort of eye test for it is like, oh, okay, so the ascendant is Sagittarius. What is like, how is America, how are Americans known? What's the cartoon stereotype? Oh, it's a cowboy. You mean it's a guy with a, you know, with a shooty uh, that's on a horse, right? It's Sagittarius. And then also, you know, it's a Jupiter ruled rising. What's the animal? Oh, it's, it's an eagle. Um, the eagle is Jupiter's animal in 2000 years of text. There, there's some very quick, obvious, like again, I test, and then it's useful when you look at transits. Again, doesn't mean it's the only useful chart for thinking about the United States, but yeah, yeah. So related to that, possibly relevant. Look at the degree of this eclipse, which is at twelve degrees of Sagittarius on December fourth, and then look at the degree of the ascendant in this quote-unquote hypothetical chart for American Sibley. It is also at twelve degrees of Sagittarius. So. If there is any symbolic significance to this time, you know, this birth chart for 5:10 p.m. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that's been handed down over the years and used at different points, then that solar eclipse is falling right on the degree of the United States ascendant um, for this coming eclipse, which means it should be a much more important eclipse personally uh, for the United States than normal. Um, one of the things, of course, that that makes me think about is. That was one of the astrological indications uh, for the election last year that really tilted things in Biden's favor, and that ahead of time we were all talking about as potentially more indicative indicative of a Biden win versus a Trump win of the twenty twenty presidential election. Which is we all saw that after the election day, when the electors would vote in December, that there was going to be an eclipse that day in Sagittarius, which would fall. Right in Biden's rising sign, which is also Sagittarius. 
So that means that that solar eclipse in Sagittarius is also falling in his rising sign, which means it could potentially be personally important for him. Um, of course, it's the first house, so sometimes for presidents, we've seen that in previous years, like when you know Trump became president or Obama's both both of his elections were eclipses either in his rising sign or his midheaven. Um, but yeah, an eclipse in the first house can sometimes be more personally important for a person, either for matters relating to their sort of character and destiny in some sense, to the extent that that's tied in with the first house and the ruler of the first house. It can also be tied into um, you know, physical matters pertaining to their health and body, since that's also the first house and is potentially relevant here since that's come up in, in recent weeks, of course. Yeah, this all feels so um, relevant when you add all that in with the U.S.'s Pluto return as well, which is so you know it's going to go exact on February twenty second next year, and um, holding that in context with this exact alignment of the solar eclipse on the the rising degree of the U.S. chart or the Sibley chart. The U.S. is already going through a lot, and um, if I can just layer in even more here for a moment, that the Saturn-Uranus square, um, Saturn-Uranus alignments, and of course, there's a variety of ways that this can express, but historically, Saturn-Uranus alignments do tend to correlate with civil wars or internal conflicts of some kind, schisms, and um, including the U.S. Civil War happening under a Saturn-Uranus square um, in the in the 19th century, and um, it's you know each of those layers. There's really such a major focus on on the U.S. and a lot of the elements of the past that have been needing to be addressed and um, repaired and seen through in terms of you know uh, transgressions and atrocities against uh, indigenous people against um, black people and so forth it's it feels like that's it's been boiling to the surface under the Uranus Pluto and then especially last year's transits um, with the Jupiter Saturn Pluto square to Uranus um, but that story is really, we're right in the midst of it. And um, yeah. So, Becca, how yeah. you said that the Pluto can, the Pluto return is exact in February, but knowing Pluto, that's the first of what, three, five exact returns? Uh, that, that does sound about right. Um, so I'd it's basically from now that. until, or you know, from February until Pluto into Aquarius, it's all Pluto return time for the United States for a couple of years. Absolutely, like yeah. Exact. I mean, I would consider us being already within it for sure, considering it came up to twenty six degrees. Um, yeah, yeah. As a general period, I totally agree. I just mean uh, we're in like a, we're in for a series of to the minute, right? It's not just one, and then it's not just one and on the way out, right? the you know tunneling deeper going left right up down like into the heart of the complex that's interesting then that the venus retrograde station is even closer to the us pluto at 27 capricorn than pluto is at the time 
Um, so that could be tied into things. So then, yeah, we speed it up here to February and we see the first hit of transiting Pluto hitting the Sibley chart Pluto at 2732 Capricorn. And then it comes back again next year, looking like August, September, uh, another pass, or actually it's more like July timeframe, another pass of 2732. And then what do we get? One more here at looks like December ish, January of 2022, we get one more hit. But then it's then we're already getting into Pluto and Aquarius time. That is terrifying as an Aquarius rising. Uh, all right, I've looked. I've, I've looked enough into the future. I'm going to stop looking. Come back and, to December. Okay. Come back. Yeah, let's bring it back yeah. locally to this year to 2021. So that's a good reminder. That's interesting in terms of the eclipse. I wonder if that's not going to be a thing then where. We get the eclipse in December, but then Mars helps set something off a couple weeks later when it makes that ingress into Sagittarius. That reminds me of like some of the predictions that like almost that astrologers almost made back in um, like 2001, for example, were about a major eclipse that fell on the eastern seaboard in I think like Capricorn or something like that. And then what happened is they got triggered several months later when Mars ingressed into Capricorn and activated the eclipse degrees. Um, just before September 11th, 2001. So sometimes there's interesting later triggers of Mars or other planets that ingress into the eclipse sign and sort of wake up um, some things that were a little bit dormant but set up and put into place prior to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it stays a hot spot for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So back to week three of December, Mercury going into Capricorn on the same day. And then towards the end of that week on December 18th, we get our second lunation of the month, which is a full moon in Gemini. And this is our first lunation as we start to move a little bit outside of eclipse season. Yeah, and it's actually a pretty jolly lunation. Um, it's a full moon that, you know, isn't stained red. Um, and it's got a basically perfect trine to Jupiter. Hmm. And it's T squaring Neptune as well, isn't that right? With hmm. uh yeah, it's got it's got some of that. Yeah, it's a little past, I think, but um, definitely by orb. I'm just thinking of our focus on Neptune earlier on that it'll come in. Um, oh yeah, it is a little bit past. Um, that that kind of Neptunian subtlety and sensitivity will be coming in. Yeah. Oh, my kitten just woke up and is coming to say hi. <laughs> okay. Can we? What's what's your cat's name? This is a cat-friendly podcast. Oh, I said that before the recording. So, uh, this is Faith. She's just been in my life for a couple weeks, um, uh. and she's been napping for the last few hours. Um, and uh, she might be coming in to join, or I might be quietly ushering her out. <laughs> well, hello to Faith, uh, Austin. You're huge cat is lurking about somewhere in, in the house. Yeah, I don't know where the cat squatch is. She's around here somewhere. She came and sniffed the, the wires uh, earlier, but she might show up. All right. Well, we'll have to see if that wasn't uh, some sort of cat-related omen for our full moon in Gemini on December 18th. If there's like a, a swarm of like cats that come out of the jungle in like Egypt or some other f place, 
and start attacking people, that would be interesting. Um, so Lunation and Gemini, that's true, it does have a nice trine to Jupiter, which is kind of positive and, and jolly, as you said, Austin, but also a little bit of the Neptunian um, illusion coming from the square from Neptune, which can sometimes be good, sometimes bad. It depends on how it's how it's used. But at least it's not an eclipse in terms of it not being like a major beginning or major ending, instead a little little bit of a culmination. Mm. Yeah. Oh, now we have the other the other cat presence. Yeah. It's a full moon cat kind of discussion here. Yeah, somehow this is gonna be tied in. I don't know. I need to pull out some of my old textbooks on interpreting omens oh. to see what giant cat <laughs> appearance means. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, please don't attack the mic. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my gosh! Um, just also the the alignment with Jupiter that Austin brought up, and how um, you know our, our home feline creatures came in right then, and um, they're they're good at making the home feel warm and cozy in that kind of Moon Jupiter way, where you know everything feels a little bit softer and more nourishing and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That is um restorative and supportive a little bit. Um so I am seeing Venus stationing like grinding to a halt right about or right after that time. So I don't know that it's all fun and games during this time period necessarily. Um even if it's not a, a you know super difficult lunation. Um, what does that bring us to? That brings us to the end of that week, and we're getting towards the tail end of um, December. We're getting to the Venus retrograde. So before we proceed further, I should introduce the electional chart for this month because it occurs right in the middle of December. So uh, each month, Lisa Scheim and I do the Auspicious Elections podcast, which is an exclusive that's available to patrons through our page on Patreon. Where we pick out four, at least four auspicious electional charts, and I release one of those publicly on the forecast. So the election that we wanted to highlight during the forecast episode this month is set for uh, December 13th, 2021, at roughly 11.05 a.m. local time. So I have it set for Denver, but you should be able to set the chart for about 11 a.m. local time, whatever city you're living in, and then adjust the ascendant until it's at about 25, 26, or 27 degrees of Aquarius, and you'll end up with an electional chart roughly like this one that has Aquarius rising and Jupiter conjunct the degree of the ascendant at 27 Aquarius in a day chart, placing Jupiter in the first house. Um, this is a Saturn ruled ascendant using the traditional rulership scheme with Saturn in its own domicile in Aquarius in the first whole sign house in a day chart. So it's actually a pretty strong Saturn election, but instead of placing Saturn right on the Ascendant, which can be a little bit strong, a little bit overbearing, we decided to place Jupiter right on the Ascendant, which can be a little bit lighter even though it's a Saturn election. Um, the Moon is in, a, in Aries in the third whole sign house, and it's applying to a sextile a little bit widely with Jupiter in Aquarius, which is kind of um, supportive and a little bit helpful. It's also applying to squares with the Venus-Pluto conjunction, which is not as ideal, but you can't really get around that conjunction this month. It's going to be there pretty much no matter what. But this is one of the very last uh, elections that you can get with Jupiter and Saturn in the same sign in Aquarius. 
So if anybody's been wanting to start something in order to really capture some of the power of those Aquarius rising elections and the Saturn and Aquarius elections, while Jupiter is still there to balance out and sort of moderate some of Saturn's tendencies to some extent, then this would be a great time to do it, I think. And that's our main election for, for this month. So um, we're actually going to be using this electional chart to do our year ahead forecast. Yeah, I was going to say, we, that looks familiar, Chris. <laughs> it does look familiar because I tend to schedule important things, you know, surprise, surprise, on our auspicious electional charts each month. And we just scheduled this. So me and Austin and Lisa Scheim are going to be doing the year ahead forecast for 2022. It's going to be kind of an all-day event from the sounds of it because we're going to break it up into two parts, right, Austin? Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna do. Like we'll, a- we'll um, yeah, people. It'll be like a marathon, right, where people are spraying our faces with water and you know, offering us protein bars and right, you know, et cetera, like- et cetera. Hopefully, like marathons, we won't um, end up. We won't like be finishing with like shit running down our legs and our organs failing. But you never know. Oh yeah, lots of Gatorade. Um, so it should be fun. So I'll send out some information about that, and people can join the live stream for when we record it that day through our page on Patreon. Um, other than that, we have three other auspicious electional charts in our podcast this month through our page on Patreon, which you can sign up for if you just go to the to Patreon.com/slash/TheAstrologyPodcast. Um, Lisa and I also released finally our year ahead. Electional astrology report for 2022, where we picked out one electional chart for each of the next 12 months, um, which is a really fun thing to do each year. And you can find that at courses.theastrologyschool.com because I decided to just sell it on my course site this year to make things quicker and easier. So, entire year ahead electional report, which is a video and audio and written report, which you can download. I signed up for that the moment you released it. I was just like, I have to know. And uh, it was absolutely wonderful to explore. Awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, there's so many good elections next year. I was surprised. It's been a huge departure compared to like 2020, for example, where we're really struggling to work around certain things or to a certain extent, even this year in 2021. But I was surprised to the extent to which we're going to get back to some really great planetary elections next year, where almost every single planet. You can find some part during the year where you can pick out a really good chart for that planet. Yeah, it looks like a great year ahead in terms of those kind of key moments throughout. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's go back to December in order to start to wrap, sort of wrap things up as we're getting to the end of the month. Um, the next thing that happens is we get to Sunday, December nineteenth, and Venus stations retrograde in Capricorn conjunct Pluto, as we've already talked about a bunch. So that is the sort of turning point this month in terms of that major mundane alignment. Then the following day, the Sun sextiles Jupiter and Mercury trines Uranus on Monday the 20th. The following day, as it does around this time every year, the Sun moves into Capricorn and we get the winter solstice on the 21st. Then later in the week, Saturn squares Uranus on Friday the 24th of December, and Pluto, or Venus I should say, makes its second conjunction with Pluto on Saturday, the 25th of December. So this entire week of December is all Venus, Pluto, Venus retrograde, and Saturn square Uranus stuff all sort of crammed together into one very short timeline. Yeah, so another, I should say, another high tide once again for the Saturn Uranus square. 
And uh, this is actually what I was uh, starting to ask your thoughts about at the very beginning of the podcast, Becca. Um, so I've been thinking of it because they're in fixed signs and based on my observations of how it's gone, it's a fixed crisis. It's a fixed structural crisis. Um, there's immense pressure um, to either adapt or reform on all sorts of different institutions. Um, and it, it's not, you know, it's, it's very different from the, like the Saturn, Pluto and a cardinal sign where it was like, here's this one giant thing, right? And everybody reacts to the one giant thing, but we've moved, we've moved into this phase where it's just this ongoing fixed crisis where we kind of know what the next one will be about because it's what the last two were about because nothing's fixed yet. Right. Yeah. It feels like, um, what, how you're describing that, I like it. It just feels like this continual patching up in so many different areas. And I'm thinking of one, I think this was in November, actually, one correlation with the that I associated with the Saturn-Uranus was the infrastructure bill that was passed and how Saturn-Uranus can often relate to um, the infrastructure work. And there was a Saturn-Uranus conjunction that actually lasted throughout all of or through the middle portion of the second world war and how much energy was redirected toward uh turning factories over to making um all the equipment needed for the war um you know bringing women into the workforce to do that and so forth um and we can see the more the less effective, I guess, approaches where it's like, let's just keep patching this up and and hope it doesn't fall apart versus when something just cracks at the foundations and then you have the opportunity to rebuild it. But it almost feels like that's not really going to be, it's like you kind of have to get down to that bottom in order to actually fix something. Otherwise, as you're saying, like these stress tests that you notice all over the place, it's like, what's going to go wrong now? What's going to go wrong now? Um, I, really, I really like that imagery of patching it up, right? Where it's like, if you've ever had a really old beat up car, you know that like, you know, if you put this in it and this and that, you can probably make that three hour drive, but you're there's no guarantee that you're going to make it back. Right. Like you just put in enough work to just get to the next thing. Um, but there's no, you know, it, you know, it's not sustainable. Right. And, and the idea of like after in the next stress test, the like the duct tape and gum and all that you used to <laughs> hold it together, like falls apart again. And then, you know, I, I, it's, it's disappointing on a collective level to watch. So far, it seems like it's just more duct tape, duct tape and gum. Um, to make it that next two hours. Yeah. The fact that the infrastructure bill was passed does seem like, even though it was um, significantly reduced from their initial aspirations of what they wanted to accomplish with it, was still something in terms of compared to the last time that a major bill like that had been passed. So it'll be interesting to see some of the specific things that get invested in, especially in the technology sector, and what kind of long-term implications that ends up having. For example, by improving and broadening um, uh, internet bandwidth across the country, and some of the things that will sort of come or flow from that, just as a side effect or as a result. 
So one one thing I, I wanted to uh, I, I liked I really liked your example of the Saturn Uranus conjunction during World War II and like how much industry and how many different places had to adapt really swiftly to mm-hmm. very different needs and it's interesting because we have you know in the not too distant future I think it's about 2032 um, that's you know about 10 years away we've got another Saturn Uranus conjunction in Gemini mm-hmm. right. Um, and that's, you know, uh, Im- important uh, for the United States in particular because Uranus in Gemini is always um, just completely changes the story and sets a tone that's going to run for the next eighty some years. And so the Uranus Saturn conjunction in the middle of that um, yeah. is very interesting. I've been looking at twenty thirty two for a while, and, and if we're looking at a conjunction as like forcing the activity, right? Whereas a, with the square now, it's like yeah. Be really nice. We can, you know, it's easy to see that, um, you know, there's there's been a failure to reform or upgrade, and there's pressure to do that now. And it's, you know, we'll we'll see how it goes. But yeah, the fact that this is the closing square of the Saturn Uranus cycle that started in uh, eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine, um, it does feel like a lot of what's emerging under this Saturn Uranus alignment is i would just be so surprised if it was worked through during this alignment it feels like it's setting things up to be met during that conjunction and i think that um you you were referencing you know with uranus and gemini uh this will be the us's uh third uranus return um that uh the first uranus return happened right after the Civil War, um, and the second one after um, World War II ended. No, during World War II, it was actually during- Uranus's ingress that got us in. World War II was happening, mm. but the United States wasn't participating until we had the Uranus ingress into Gemini. Got it. Yeah, it's one of those classic astrologer things where everyone's expecting like World War III when Uranus goes back into Gemini. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we just we know that it's um, it's just a massive pivot point. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's interesting because there are people who've studied that cycle outside of astrology, and they're like, "Yeah, it's like an eighty-something-year cycle. Um, you know, it's like this every time." Blah blah blah. And it's it's really funny to see uh, how how should we say so how that that cycle, that Uranus cycle for the United States, is so obvious. You don't even need astrology to study it or write books on it. Right. It just jumps out in the way that Uranus is really good at doing. Just pay attention to me as uh, it can often do. Yeah, we, we've seen some really wild um, tech stuff starting to happen that is just like bubbling up a little bit this year that I'm not sure isn't going to be really um, indicative of some major trends in the future that don't look huge right now but have the potential to be. Um, we had like Mark Zuckerberg's announcement about Facebook changing its name to gear up for the metaverse, which they think is going to be like a major thing. I just saw something about Apple now possibly investing in that with virtual reality and stuff. And I watched this interview with Zuckerberg where he kept talking about the later part of the decade and he was hesitant to put a date on it, but he kept talking about like 2027, 2028, and 2029 as being the target for their projections of when some of this major like um, technology involving virtual reality and its integration with um, 
other things like that is going to start to take over as the new form factor for interfacing with with technology and it's going to be interesting seeing how this past decade and things like you know mobile phones in that little tablet um form factor becomes something that looks very dated you know decades from now like uh you know cars from the 1970s or something like that yeah absolutely yeah i don't know i i think uh, I, I I think virtual reality can do some things that our current stuff doesn't, but there are also a lot of things you don't want to do in virtual reality, hmm. right? Like I don't need to write emails in virtual reality, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you don't need to call somebody. Um, you don't need virtual reality for a lot of things. There will be things that it's uniquely useful for, but it's not going to replace things. Uh, it's not going to replace all of our current tech because it's just not necessary or useful. I don't know. We'll we'll see. Well, you might yeah. be e- eating those words at some point. Just because we don't have to doesn't mean that we won't still do it, or that somehow it won't like end up going that direction. Especially if it's faster. Especially if they start pioneering like the mind interface of being able to interface directly between the machine and brain signals in a way that's faster than doing it with your hands. Then there does become a point where, um, yeah, it does become more effective to do it. In that manner, rather than the old way, and that could be the the ultimate question: What happens when Uranus goes into Gemini? The sign, you know, as we're talking about body parts, that has to do with the hands. Hmm. I don't know if it's uh, my own Saturn Uranus or the Saturn Uranus uh, in the sky, but I just can't help but feel into the Saturnian side of what we're talking about, where it's oh, it's like a fucking all nightmare. Of, all of <laughs> it's the it's not going to be good for people at all. It yeah. might be slightly more convenient. That would be the best case scenario. Well, you know, just like email, it's it is more convenient. But anyone who's been buried under an onslaught of emails is like, God, I just really miss writing letters, <laughs> even if you had a huge correspondence. But again, that might be my own Saturn Uranus retro view on things. <laughs> I don't know. Every every time they study what happens to human beings and their physical and mental health when they engage too deeply with the whatever new technologies are out, it's always um, almost uh, unequivocally horribly negative. <laughs> so I mean, this isn't we we can go beyond just like personal opinion. Uh, yeah. Well, everyone, you know, hundreds of thousands of listeners are using technology to access this podcast and have been enriched in their ability to study astrology way more effectively and comprehensively than in any other time in history. So I think some people would disagree in terms of that. Well, I didn't say all technology is bad no matter what. We were talking about the metaverse and Zuckerberg, like giant (laughs) corporate um, this. I mean, it it really is a I feel like I say this too often in so many situations, but it really is that we have to hold that balance between all of these different things. It is a balancing act. And um, the the gifts of what technology, technology is such a broad term, but what it's offered, the fact that we're all having this conversation together, and as Chris is saying, how many people are able to access it. I, I wouldn't have the career that I have if it wasn't possible to do it from my house. Um, and at the same time, reminding ourselves to like touch back in with those Saturnian things as well um, that keep us grounded, like literally to to the earth and to our bodies and to not go off into a virtual space completely. 
Yeah, that'll be the challenge of the coming decades and century, I'm sure, as technology becomes more enmeshed in our lives. Um, Austin, were you never? Did you never join us with the MySpace groups when we were doing like astrology meetings in like Second Life back in the day? Like Nick Nick Diginvest gave a talk on Venus retrogrades at one point, like 2006, 2007. No, we- I mean I was part of the uh, that that MySpace group, um, but I, I didn't do those. I, I yeah, I, I wasn't. Um, I didn't do Second Life. I think maybe I signed up for an account once and never used it. Hmm. I was just talking, I did an episode with Adam Summer that I'll release in December where we were talking about a lot of that stuff and how there was interesting sort of like previews of some of the things to come even 12 years ago that we were doing like a long time ago, um, but also other interesting technologies that have started to emerge and and buzzwords this year like NFTs. Have either of you looked into that or have any idea what an NFT is? I looked it up the other day. I'm aware of, yes, the non-fungible tokens. Yeah. Uh, well, just the idea of transferring ownership of like electronic things, and uh, one of the questions was how that might be applied to astrology at some point, which is kind of an interesting and fun fun question to think about. Yeah, I wouldn't even know how to begin to start applying that. Um, we don't have to. That would be a whole digression. So, just bringing it back to the end mm-hmm. of the month and the last of the astrology of December, uh, we get into the very final week starting with a Mercury-Neptune sextile on Sunday the 26th. And a couple days later, Jupiter makes its ingress into Pisces, uh, departing finally from Aquarius and moving into, I think it it does like a nice five-month run through Pisces, I think we decided through late December and early May, right? Yeah, the, it's, it's like maybe mid-May it switches to Aries. I know, I know that when Norwalk happens at the end of May that it's in Aries. Yeah, that's one of the real like questions is we know that that Jupiter and Pisces for many people brought like a period of relief and to some extent not fully grounded um sense that things were were getting better and that things were over in terms of the pandemic for a few months, but it was at least enjoyable during the time. And I'm wondering if this first five months of this run of Jupiter through Pisces is things Calming back down and going back into a, a more stable sense of normalcy, or if this is again a, a temporary thing that becomes clear the temporary nature of it once Jupiter leaves Pisces eventually and goes into Aries for the second half of 2022. Either of yeah, you, well, I think I, I think that we do way? get some of that like um, everything's okayness, but not yeah. until we get done with the Mars Saturn um, co presence in Aquarius. Like um, the period of time where Mars is in Aquarius with Saturn squaring Uranus is, I don't think, going to feel very okay. Um, That's in like February? Yeah. Um, And I think it runs into March. Um, But I I think that's going to kind of temporarily um, steal the spotlight from whatever soothing words Jupiter and Pisces has for us. I think when we get past that Mars Saturn, um, you know, whatever whale songs that Jupiter and Pisces is singing will will, will be received more eagerly. I like that whale songs that Jupiter and Pisces is singing. That's beautiful. Hmm. The the Jupiter Neptune conjunction again just to bring that forward, that really starts tightening in after um the the Mars Saturn alignment you were just speaking to as well. So, I think will feel that shift even more on that basis um where the 
the kind of dreamy, idealistic, uh, a phrase I used before, like rose-colored glasses kind of quality will be seeping forward more and more. Um, March, April, May in particular, like that April, May period. Um, and there's a few other, like Venus will come up and join Jupiter and Neptune later in April, which can have a really can sometimes be too much, of course, as Jupiter's problematic side can be, but, um, you know, kind of saccharine quality. But Venus, Jupiter, Neptune can also just be so exquisitely, richly, abundantly beautiful. Um, I know I'm looking forward to it. As yeah, you hey, you, you're, you're voice. giving away all the astrology of 2022. Sorry, yeah. That is that is uh, private information to be saved for your head forecast. Uh, both of you are getting ahead of us. So, well, but you literally asked a question about next year. I that just is my fault. It. But it, I mean, that is a good point because Jupiter ingressing into Pisces is the onset and the beginning point of all of that. Like all of that starts building up at the end of December. It may start off a little bit more subtly compared to where it gets when those alignments go exact several months later. But it's good to pay attention to that as the starting point, and some people will see a shift because remember. Last year, earlier this year, in what was it, May, when Jupiter went into Pisces, it was like literally that day the CDC in the US announced that people didn't have to wear masks yeah, mask anymore. Off. Yeah. So sometimes those ingresses are very potent and, and it'll be interesting to pay attention to see what happens at that time. And the fact that it's so close to to New Year's as well, you know, people who aren't paying attention to the astrology usually are still marking the feeling of the shift into a new year. And setting New Year's resolutions and looking at how you know they want to bring in different um, things into their lives, and so again, that shift happening just a couple days beforehand makes me wonder if the non-astrologically informed will be like, "Wow, you know, I feel something different here. It must be 2022." But you know, we're all sitting there. Yeah, I like it when that happens. Feels like last June. Well, that happened last year too because we had in December. The um the conjunction the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn occur, and that just that was such a potent shift during that time as well as you know eclipses and everything else towards the end of the year, which just um seemed to set the stage for a major shift at the end of the calendar year, which worked out pretty well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So that brings us pretty much to the end of the month. There's just a little bit of minor planet. Activity taking place on December 29th, Mercury conjoins Venus, which is a nice, pleasant little aspect, followed by a slightly less pleasant Mercury conjunct Pluto. So Mercury's amplifying the Venus Pluto conjunction on the 29th and 30th. And then simultaneously, we have Mars completing a sextile with Saturn on the 30th of December. And those are the final aspects that kind of close out the month. With uh, Mercury joining Venus and Pluto, what we were speaking about before, all that kind of deep relationship material, that's maybe the time to have those conversations that you need to have mm -hmm. with people. Like, yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah. And Mercury helps make things thinkable. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot that's very, how should we say, richly feeling toned <laughs> about the Venus Pluto. Uh, but sometimes you need Mercury as a translator. To figure out how to talk about that, you know, to to both yourself and to another person. Right. Sometimes getting a third party to help talk through things can be helpful. 
Mercury can be mediator between Venus and Pluto, which mythically, I guess, is oh no, I'm combining my myths. Never mind. Where uh, Mercury can go into the underworld and. Uh, no, I'm not combining it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah Mercury right. goes into the underworld and is the one who kind of negotiates Persephone's return back from Hades to uh, the upper world with with Demeter, and then you know her going back down to be queen of the underworld for half of the year. Anyway, yeah. bringing up the Persephone Hades dynamic is a very, I think, Venus Pluto myth. Um, then Mercury helps moves the story along. Yeah, and Mercury then was like the first relationship counselor. Uh, <laughs> that that would not be a fun counseling session, I have to say, on Mercury's part dealing with with Persephone and Pluto in that instance. But uh, yeah, that's a good analogy, and I think that's a good way to end the month because that's literally the last major alignment that we end December of twenty twenty one with. Beautiful. It's, um, it's been another hell of a year. It has, yeah. Uh, it's interesting looking back in it all now how it's worked out in retrospect, and and again how literally in some instances, um, it's been an interesting ride. I think similar to twenty twenty in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, thank you both for joining me today. This is amazing. It was great having you on the show, Becca. Um, tell us a little bit. What do you have? Do you have anything coming up? Where can people find out more information about your work? Uh, people can find out more information through my website. It's just my name. It's beccatarnas.com. And uh, I have an events page there that I update with, with different things coming up. I don't have anything really major to announce in terms of events. I do, as we spoke about before, I do have one event that is coming up next year, and I'm really excited about it. It's in person in a very special place, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. Um, so I'm just going to drop that if anyone wants to check out my website later on. <laughs> um, so that's my kind of secret announcement. Um, and other than that, for next year, I'm really like Austin has been doing. Uh, thanks for the inspiration. I'm really trying to turn towards writing more. And um, so I'll just share that some of my previously published pieces can be accessed through Archive, the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology, which I co-edit. Um, and the the new issue, I'm not working on this current issue, but it should be coming out early next year. Um, and that that journal has um, a lot of really in-depth research into particularly planetary aspect correlations in the world transits and um, personal charts, natal charts. Um, so if anyone's interested in, in checking that out in terms of the, the field of archetypal cosmology. Yeah. Brilliant. That's amazing. Um, awesome. So people can check out your website at beccatarnas.com, and that has links to everything else? Yes. It does. Um, perfect. Uh, Austin, what do you have coming up? So let's see. I'll just be I'll be grinding on faces edits, and then um, let's see. We uh, Sphere and Sundry has um, a rather glorious Regulus series that's coming out that made use of the Jupiter in very early Pisces. Um, and so it's um, so Regulus is technically like a few minutes into Virgo. So if you're electing, you can do like a late Leo moon and get it or an early Virgo. And so this is an early Virgo 
um, in perfect aspect to Jupiter and Pisces. So the idea um, behind both the election and Kate's uh, formulation was to do Regulus, but make it Regulus, but chill. Like a more, uh, we, we all know that Regulus can be a bit much. So it was like how to do like, um, you know, the project was how to make like something that's bright and has all the Regulus goodness, but is like a little bit more chill, a little softer, a little bit less toe-steppy than Regulus has been. And I, I think it was fantastically successful, but it'll leave that in people's hands and experimentation. I like the sound of that. Regulus and chill, is that like a new variation of Netflix and chill? Yeah, except yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> it's um like you become um uh you know like with Regulus, it's you know becoming well known, but people don't hate you. Got right? it. I that, like that's that. the idea. Is Regulus and chill. How to take some of that like bright star power that Regulus has, but like you know sand down some of the rough edges because it can be it can be very martial, uh, but it can also be very mellow and Jupiterian. So this was trying to uh, to yeah. I'm eagerly looking forward yeah. to that. So regular and chill. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, well, people can find that at sphereandsundry.com, and I'm sure there'll be an announcement pretty soon when you launch that series, right? Yep. Yep. Perfect. Um, all right. As for myself, let's see a few announcements. Um, so I've been working on courses a lot. I realized that I used to teach an old horary astrology course, which is just a really basic course on Horary, and I took it down several years ago because I recorded it back in 2008, and the audio lectures were recorded on a voice recorder, and I really needed to redo it. But I realized that I actually messed up, and I left a hole in the community where there was nobody teaching whole sign Horary, even though it's a perfectly valid practice to do. So I've been revising that course, and I'm going to relaunch those old lectures soon on my course site at courses.theastrologyschool.com. So it's still going to be the old lectures, but I'm going to put them back up and give them access for something cheap, like $100, to learn that basic quarry course while I'm working with another astrologer from Australia named Rob Bailey to create a new and more elaborate quarry course that we're hoping to launch sometime next year. So if people would like access to that, they can get more information on my course site. Um, additionally, I'm going to be raising the price of my Hellenistic course because I've started doing monthly webinars with students of the course. Um, so I wanted to give people a heads up that I'll be raising the price on that at the end of the year, at the very end of December. So if you'd like to sign up at the lower rate, which is about $100 lower than what it will be, you can do that now still and get in for the cheaper price, which basically gives you a $100 discount compared to what it will be at the end of the year. Um, let's see, other things. We finally launched the posters for 2022, so every year we sell posters that lists the astrological alignments for the next year that you can put up on a handy wall poster. And um, I'm a little bit late on getting these out, but they're finally out. And you can find them at theastrologypodcast.com slash merch. Um, we've got a new system for that. Madeline from the Honeycomb Collective helped me set it up, actually. And she also added some other merch, including shirts and some different mugs, including what I'm sure is going to be a holiday stocking stuffer, which is the Sure mug, uh, with for some reason, if anybody wants a picture of my face and me saying sure, uh, as I do from time to time on the podcast, you can get that now on the podcast website at theastrologypodcast.com slash merch, uh, as well as posters and lots of other stuff like that. And I think that's it in terms of announcements that I wanted to make. You guys yeah. can do you want me to send you a sure mug? How do you feel about that? Would that be a good way to wake up? Absolutely. That 
I'm so sure. glad you did that. <laughs> sure. Okay. Austin says, sure. Uh, <laughs> perfect. Well, I'll send out some of those. And I think that's it for this episode of the podcast. So thanks a lot, both of you, for joining me. This was a lot of fun. We did a super, even deeper dive than I'm used to doing on the monthly forecast episodes. Um, so we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, Thank you so much. It was really lovely getting to speak with both of you. It's really an honor. Yeah. Uh, well, it was a pleasure. Uh, thanks, everybody, all the patrons that joined us for the live recording of this episode of the Astrology Podcast. We appreciate you. The support on Patreon makes a huge difference in terms of being able to do the podcast and keep improving and expanding what we're doing here. And starting over the next month, I'm actually going to be moving into the next phase of the podcast, which is having more people out to start doing more interviews in person in the podcast studio. So that's something to look forward to, and I should have more information about that soon. All right, so that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening, and I guess we'll see you again next time for the forecast for 2022. So good luck and take care, and we'll see you next month. Right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, 
and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.